And I'm just going to double check all of our channels, make sure everything. Are we going live? Hey, everyone. Hope you're doing well out there. I've got yes. a new mic set up. If it starts to crackle or if anything goes wrong, tell us immediately in the comments and I will panic. <laughs> well, I was I was I was waiting for your 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 reveal of tech genius of how you're gonna I'd like to thank Blue Tardis if he happens to be out there for helping me get my tech up and running. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh we're all set to start. Everything's working. So great. Hello everyone. Uh welcome back to another week of Lorebeards. And uh, this is the first week where we actually opened up voting for the community to decide. And we had the choices of talking about one of my favorite conspiracies, which is the triple goddess theory, uh, which is something Ooh. we'll probably get around to a later day. Uh, Nagash and then an Empire QA and Nagash won, though it actually near the end was getting kind of close between the elf goddesses and Nagash. Uh, but Nagash did come out on top. There was almost 4,000 votes, I think, which is pretty awesome. So we wanted to thank everybody for participating in that. And uh, do let us know, by the way, as well, if the auto levels are good and everything, make sure y'all let me know if you can hear Andy well. And uh, mm -hmm. let's just jump into it. So I'm going to go ahead and preface this before we even start. Of We did, <laughs> we did read this. Oh, um, <laughs> we did. Uh, we, me and Andy both read through the Rise of the Gash. Not going to talk about it. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> It is not relevant to this conversation. <laughs> um, I'd like to um, also thank Mr. Vorn for pointing out the N7 uh, hoodie. I do indeed like it. So um, I have a couple of uh, comments to open up with as well. And that's that Nagash has gone through various versions over the course of time. When you go back to when he was first introduced in fourth, all the way up to what they did with him in the end times, each of which draws upon different sources. So you're going to find that as we go along, we're not going to so much contradict ourselves here, but we are going to occasionally say, in this book, it says this. And in that book, it says that, or alternatively, there's just different stories here. And it's going to be a matter of which one that we plumb down on on a particular comment thread that we'll eventually come to some form of answer with. Particularly with, is Nagash alive and good to go right now? According to the mm. end times, no. But according to the end times, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> hey, that's, you know, that's always the... Uh... That's always the joy of Warhammer Fantasy or anything Games Workshop related <laughs> is that uh, technically everything is correct and also nothing. <laughs> Absolutely. So you're going to find a little bit of um, self-contradictory nonsense as we go along, but that's part of the fun. Yeah, that's half the ride. Yeah. Um, that's what, And I will say that's what makes Lord's discussions really interesting and possible for this is that you can literally have an endless discussion because you can argue <laughs> and everyone can be right. <laughs> totally. So, uh nagash the great necromancer one of my favorite characters and a character that uh has honestly only gotten better with time at least in my opinion um i'm not sure exactly like he goes pretty far back as far as like warhammer fantasy is concerned i mean he's had I a tell you when he first entered the I'll, let you, I'll just let you take over for the intro yeah okay so um I'll, let's start at the very beginning it's a pretty good place to begin so back in 1994 nagash was first entered into the great world of warhammer with the undead army list now the undead army list for fourth edition warhammer was quite unlike the army list that we get later in that it was an army list for all undead not just tomb kings or vampires or something mm -hmm. in between it was very much a this is the undead and these are all the things that you get with an undead army. And Nagash was introduced there for the very first time, as was descriptions for the land of the dead and how they work. And 
believe it or not, the character has changed almost nothing from its fourth edition intro. It's been given a lot more extra material over the course of time as they've drilled down on specific details that may never have been covered to begin with, but the core of the character has stayed the same from there. So if you're out there going, I'd really like to see where this all started, I recommend the 1994 Undead Army list. However, I don't think it's the best place to begin if we're going to be discussing the gash. The best place to begin is actually the modern, the good old current, in terms of 8th Warhammer, Tomb King army list, because yeah. there we get arguably the most important influencer for starting the con the conversation about Nagash, and that's the mortuary cult and where it comes from. And ultimately, Nagash's creator, Setra. Yeah, which uh love Setra, awesome guy. I cannot wait to see his new mini for the old world because he was really big in the advertising when they announced it. Uh, which that was weird seeing Games Workshop make memes, but <laughs> whatever works. Uh, Certainly made me smile. Yeah, their, their marketing team was like, let's let the young person <laughs> handle the marketing announcement. But uh, yeah, so Setra, the only person I would argue is as arrogant or maybe even more arrogant than the guy. It's, it's a tight race between the two of them. And I think they're both aware of that, which is why they hate each other. But uh <laughs> Um, so um, to cut, start off the loose discussion there, Setra, um, he was, let's say, the biggest Tomb King in the past who bound it all together and backled with that. Uh, he took the original Kemri city, which was originally founded by Nehek, which is where Nehekara gets its name from. Mm. And he pretty much bound all of that, plus pretty much everything up to the Empire, across the mountains and all the way over up into what is now known as Deep Chaos Dwarf Territory, all the way down into Southlands and battling away with Lizardmen, and he made that his empire. And his greatest regret was that he would not live to expand it further. Indeed, there's a nice mm -hmm. little story with him as he makes his way all the way up to what is the modern-day Black Mountains. He gets there and he's like, oh yeah, I've conquered right up to the edge of the world, crosses over what becomes Blackfire Pass, <laughs> reaches the and other side, and goes, world. holy shit, there's more world! <laughs> uh, um, and gets really depressed, because He's not going to make it. He's already old by this point. And that's what starts the mortuary cult. He founds it. He says, no, we've got to find a way to extend our lives. We have got access to the gods. And as they move forward, their understandings of the winds of magic, particularly with the gods, began to modify as well. Because the further north mm. they went, the more the winds of magic, which they believed was the breath of the gods themselves became evident to them. So as they make their way all the way back to the what will become the land of the dead, um, they just call it, what is it, the promised land or the blessed land? I can't remember. Exactly. Uh, yeah, the blessed land, I think. Is... Blessed land it could yeah. be, yeah. Um, so they retreat back there and the mortuary cult is founded and they have one job only, immortality. Mm. That's it. And they <laughs> easy, study easy like mad. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting um, that Cetra... Um, got a whole multi-hours video if anyone's bored and wants to go watch that on him um, that I'm very proud of. But Cetra, to say, Cetra is definitely one of the most fascinating figures in Warhammer history of that. He, you take a guy who in many ways was kind of started as a regular human and he took humanity to kind of its ultimate limit. Um, like Andy said, his empire was fucking gigantic. I think it's yeah. it was bigger than Cathay at its largest. Yeah, um, like, I'd, I'd say it's probably the biggest one that we're aware of in the world, possibly barring the elves, because the elves at their peak were pretty much all over the world. 
Mm. Lizard men don't really count. They cheated being a naval empire. empire. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they did the British Empire thing. The sun never sets in our empire. That tiny bit there, that tiny bit there, that mm. tiny bit there. Oh, yeah, we rule the world. Yeah. Um, but And Cetra, yeah. like, he... Cetra was so powerful that he was able to get the Nehekaran gods to basically almost be on equal to him as opposed to him like actively worshiping like he worshiped them but he also did some pretty nasty stuff to make some interesting deals with them yeah i'll, uh, I'll, I'll add a little bit to that yeah um, no. one of the reasons that cetra came to power is that he didn't do what the previous um let's say nehekaran although they weren't really nehekaran peoples per se at that point mm. but he, he did what the previous kings didn't do and that's what he actually revered and put god's front and center yeah. and was constantly using them not just to reinforce his own let's say as a force multiplier but he was also using it as a people modifier to uh, make everybody band together underneath one belief system um the belief system of their gods and they created supposedly a great covenant with the gods they believed themselves to be given all of their all of their knowledge from the gods their beliefs say that the gods fought against the great wars against chaos and mm. pushed them north from what is now the lands of the dead and fertilized the entire area around the great river Vitae, um which is interestingly classical in terms of language and creates all manner of questions as to the <laughs> nature of language but let's not think about that because it just means yeah. life in the classical language um so the river Vitae and they and the gods filled that with life and then the Nehekarans were given access to all the technology that was required and all of the holy stuff that was required to make life there. And Cetra was the one that reground everybody back and said, these gods, they're the shiz, and these gods are the ones that are going to allow me, Captain Megalomaniac, to mm. conquer the world! Yeah, man. To be fair, he wasn't blowing smoke. Like he made a horrible from my you know, from our modern perspective, a horrible sacrifice. He butchered his entire family um in offering to the gods, but but he basically he reinvigorated that pact. Like because of that, there was a horrible plague affecting lot like Kemri, especially, but a lot of Nehekara. And the gods brought the rain, and the rain washed the plague away, and the Vitae flooded and got rid of all this ruination because the gods were very happy. And Cetro rose to power, and then he ran around kicking the crap out of all the other cities, <laughs> telling them they were his now. Um, and so the next step for me is the mortuary cult. Yes. Um, now this one's big because um, from Cetra's rule to the point when Cetra eventually dies, um, we have five generations worth of um, mortuary cult in place. And each generation learned more and increasingly more about extending life. Now, the important thing here is to really realize that this isn't necessarily about necromancy per se, but it becomes about necromancy. Um, in that, to begin with, they're all about extending life using rituals, using various techniques, using various religious ceremonies to extend their life to make it last longer and Cetra himself has this done to him um and he lives for a very very long time yeah like the first goal was not ago. yeah the first goal because a lot of people think tube kings and they think oh like bringing back people from the dead the first goal mm -hmm. was not to die in the first place yeah 100 percent. and then when they realized the mortuary cult that they couldn't 
get him to live any longer. They basically had to break the news to Cetra, who was known for his somewhat, let's say, tetchy nature. Dude, you're going to die. Um, I'm really sorry, but we as the mortuary cult think we can do something. We, we can bind your soul directly into your body uh, so that you will never truly die and we'll be able to bring you back later. That's the plan. Um, and in the, that process, the priests in turn figure out how to do it for themselves and they move from being priests into like priests and this is before Nagash so make mm. sure you're aware of this when you're thinking about exactly where does the undead stuff comes from it doesn't really come strictly speaking from Nagash Nagash was standing on the shoulders of previous research that was already done because Setra commanded it to be so. Setra, in many respects, creates the entire environment that Nagash is born into, where we've got ourselves like priests who can live for centuries. And they are secretly guarding the information and knowledge that they have because they don't want to lose the power they have. The kings, who they extend the life for for often centuries in turn, um, will carry on until eventually they die of a, what they, an equivalent of old age. But the like priests just don't die. They just keep going, mm. but there is a downside because they haven't found the secret to eternal youth. Yeah, they found life. the secret to eternal yeah. life, and yeah. that means that they get older mm. and older and older until yeah, a lot of people become liches. Ah. A lot of people look at lich priests and are like, "Wow, look at this undead unit." It's like technically <laughs> they're not; they are yeah. actually still alive. Yeah, technically they're just sort of still going, um, and the like priests just keep on going, and they're arguably the first undead but it is deeply arguable because mm. i think it'd be fair to say in terms of warhammer's overall cosmology the first true undead come because of nagash's actions but he is born into this priesthood in that he's the firstborn son of one of the kings which means he immediately goes into the mortuary cult and his younger brother becomes the king after him and Nagash is surrounded by these ancient mysteries that have been put in place by Setra, who is absolutely obsessed with living forever. And the people themselves, by the time Nagash has come round, are so obsessed with the nature of life and death that their entire culture has become centered around it. The god of death, in many respects, is now far more important than the king of the gods itself. Skulls and bones are all over the lands of what will become the land of the dead. Um, because this becomes such a central part of their religion about their cosmology. And the guy himself is equally obsessed, but with one extra detail, he's also brilliant. Yeah, and there are a few um, little things that uh, are introduced in the later lore that I like a lot. Like we do have one note of one of the things that really inspires Nagash from an early age. And like Andy said, he was handed to the mortuary cult very early of that um, because the mortuary cult was so important because the uh, Setra Setra cared more about the mortuary cult for his own selfish reasons, because he told them when he was dying, y'all better bring me back or else. And he had enough power and was liked enough by the gods that even though the priests could theoretically live forever, that was terrifying to them. Um, nobody wanted to film Setra because even in death, he was terrifying. Um, so they figure out, like Andy said, but when Nagash is born, uh, because the firstborns are always handed over the mortuary cult, make sure the mortuary cult has a lot of power and wields a lot of power over the royal families. Um, Nagash, one of the notes we get about him is that early in the mortuary cult, because he has to study death and understand how death works and everything, he witnesses people die. And Nagash, he watches people die. And the first big thought that occurs to him as a child is he looks at it and he goes 
not for me. Yep. I, I refuse to experience this. It looks horrible. He's and, wrong because he yeah, will. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think in a lot of ways he was scared of it. Like Nagash mm. honestly comes off as a character who, although he hides it well, he is terrified of death. Uh, which yeah, I, I definitely think that's the case to begin with. When he becomes what he eventually becomes, the concept of terror is largely gone, but that doesn't mean that it's not still embedded into his psyche in terms of how he works and progresses through all of the mm -hmm. choices that he makes. Yeah, so like Andy said, he's brilliant. He comes up in the Mortuary Cult's ranks, and like like Andy said, I mean, he's working with people who are functionally immortal and have been around for, like, uh, Grand Hierophant Katep, who's one of the oldest... Uh, <laughs> I think the oldest Lich Priest. Yep, he's the oldest we know of, at least. Yeah, one of the originals that really figured out immortality. Nagash is so freaking intelligent, and he is so... He's able to process uh, information and knowledge and understand, like, a lot of... Um, the the cults uh the mortuary cult had a very different understanding of magic back then uh, like andy said they relied much more on their religion to inflict uh work with the winds of magic and they didn't have access to as much magic yeah so they relied very heavily on that uh relationship with the gods and nagash kind of learned everything they had to teach him while just in the span of becoming an adult um mm -hmm. like he wasn't that old when he reached the point where he was kind of on par with the likes of Katep and them as far as understanding the nature of everything they did know. And mm -hmm. Nagash realized that their knowledge was limited and it frustrated him immensely. So at the mighty age of 32, that's about to change completely. So we're now talking, well, Nagash was born approximately 4,500 years before the, let's say the current era, the end of the world, whichever particular era you're working mm -hmm. in, 25 something or another, an imperial calendar. Um, and when he's 32, he gets access to some dark elves. <laughs> and now there's different stories here. In fact, I've read at least three different stories for how this particular event pans out. In some of them, it's when his dad dies. Um, they were captured and put in his pyramid and, and they were tortured. In other ones, he actually works with them. In others, he has them captured and they're utilized almost like slaves for a while and then turned into his teachers in dark magic. There's a variety of different versions, but ultimately Ultimately, at some point, three Dark Elves, and this is where it gets a little bit dodgy when you start trying to think about it in practice, three exceedingly powerful Dark Elf sorcerers somehow get captured. Now, that in and of itself <laughs> yeah. is super fascinating. How? Mm. But regardless of the how, they are then somehow persuaded by Nagash, or alternatively others who are working with Nagash, to teach him Dark Magic. And that in mm. and of itself is also super interesting. But even more interesting on top of that, these are also uh, elves who must know at least enough about certain applications of dark magic that they are aware of, for example, how souls work. They are aware of mm. the potential extending geriatric side to magic uh, use as well, because we already know by this point, Malekith has already mastered this, as has Marathi. So we're looking at someone that is possibly related to that. And here's another one. One of them's probably male. And for those of you who know your male and your female Dark Elf sorcerers, there's that whole story there too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and you know, a lot of this we've talked about kind of in prior weeks, uh, which actually led up to this very nicely. Now that I think about it, uh, we didn't do it on purpose, but it feels like we did it on purpose. Of we that. walked. 
uh, with like <laughs> back when we talked about Malekith and also when we talked about the Winds of Magic last week of that the Dark Elves and had some what you could call necromancy in a sense where like the city of Hadgrave has like wailing spirits and stuff flying around the spires and uh, they have a very they don't view mortality in the same way that humans do they don't have that obsession that the Nehekarans do because to them it's kind of it's it's so you know it's like an an ant trying to extend a, another just another day when you live for a hundred years it's just not something you think about it's not something and for the dark elves it's a lot more of a simple understanding system something they've already figured out they've already found a satisfying answer to that issue um, but for humans those answers don't work as well yeah um and it's also worth saying that the dark elves who figured it out jealously guard it because if it was so prevalently mm -hmm. known uh, you Hellebron wouldn't be in the position that she's currently in, for <laughs> <Poor example. Hellbron. laughs> uh, yeah, indeed. I mean, she what she has is a pretty sucky situation, uh, she's basically a dark elf lich priest, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, and if Marathi just gave her the stuff, okay, a stuff that very possibly is getting passed over to Nagash at this early point, at least in some form or another, he figures out the rest of it, um, then things would be very different over in dark elf land, but anyway, uh, good old Nagash gets access to dark magic through one method or another and learns it super fast. Mm. I do mean super fast. Most of the chronologies around this area generally knock it up not more than 10 years that he has. And most of the versions of it have uh, Nagash torturing them to get hold of it. Although if you go to the novels, that's not really the case. They basically have a nice little chat. The novels and stuff it. Because <laughs> yeah, quite it's quite a different version. Maybe maybe in like the last 10 minutes I'll we'll talk about the novels, but I'm, we're not doing that right now. <laughs> yeah, we really don't want to. Um because it's so very different if you look at how the novels handled it. Uh but the general story is three dark elves probably one of them male the best story around the back of it given that one of them's male is that they could be renegades um that uh, have nowhere else to go and they choose to stay there they choose to help nagash and i say choose on purpose because regardless of the supposed torture they do not have enough magic to stop what is the equivalent of teclas yurtla and finriere three exceedingly powerful sorcerers they don't have the ability to constrain them even though they're miles away from the winds of magic um they have more than enough uh, skills at their hand if they can just speak to get out of the situation they're in so there is a story here that could be told in a variety of different ways eventually nagash persuades gets out of them somehow and learns a lot and two things in particular he is about to magical technologically speaking figure out number one is the elixir of youth and number two is that wait a minute i don't need a soul to animate a corpse mm. and that's a huge one truly enormous because this is where we get the first real necromancy this is where we get the first real step towards figuring out the concepts of necromancy. Now, we've got two different versions of when he properly nails this down. We have the more modern version, 8th edition onwards, where when eventually Nagash goes to war, he starts using uh, Undead at this point. But as we'll go and look at his time away over in Nagashazar, um, the earlier versions had him figure it out properly when he was in Nagashazar. Yeah, and one thing that uh, I think is worth expanding on a little bit is uh, the Mortuary Cult had about 2,000 years to figure things out between Setra and Nagash, which is really long time. Uh, and they had genuinely mastered the art of working with souls through their priestly rites. They yep. like uh, the Tomb Kings were not 
the only difference between like modern Tomb Kings and actual living Nehekara is that they didn't have a bunch of skeletons running around, but they were using the statuary. They had the Shopti statues. They had the War Sphinxes. They had all these. Not yet. They get them during the war with Nagash. Um, uh, they they drill them down and get them properly when Nagash is winning, and they get all the gods gods together. All of the kings come together. Um, and that's when they start using the mortuary cult in particular, a host of magics they they had reluctantly not used, and then the Ashabti come, the Sphinxes come, everything else, and Nagash goes, oh arse. Um, but. <laughs> So but yeah, yeah I, should, I, I should rephrase. I should at this point. I should rephrase that to they had mastered the art of preserving souls. Yes, um, definitely. Yeah, they worked with them a lot, and uh, something that we kind of talked about, which does get a little funky, but souls tend to not necessarily hold together super well if there aren't pr preparations made to protect them, and the Nehekarns have gotten really good at that. Yeah, like um, and and the the really weird one is they've got really good at it without really using the winds of magic as we understand them today. Mm. Now. They're definitely using like the lore of Nehekara as we understand it in modern times isn't what they're using back then because they're not so high on using all of the magic yet. They don't truly understand it to the way they will understand it later. Um, so they have managed through almost certainly their connection to the gods as they understand it. They believe the winds of magic are the breath of the gods, if you remember. Um, through their understanding of it, mastered some soul magic that is quite unlike anything you get anywhere else in the world yeah and uh the the liber necris suggests it's kind of a combination of like the gods revealing information to them and then they also use uh, rituals to capture what they thought were like desert spirits and stuff but were more likely like demons or elementals and stuff that also told them things and they were kind of able to figure stuff out um mm -hmm. so they figured they're what they ended up at is very bizarre but it's a really interesting series that led them there but so anyway the gash has this he combines it with dark magic and he creates something unique um, because a lot of the things that the Karns had figured out because they took such a bizarre path, they had figured out many powerful ideas, many powerful theories, many powerful geometries using uh, magical theory, but they didn't, they couldn't power it properly. But with dark magic, Nagash instantly solved the power problem uh, and stuff started to get bad. Yeah, then Nagash moves, um, uh, and Nagash takes control. Um, there's there's quite a lot of story around this, but let's just keep it simple because Nagash is four thousand five hundred years old. We can't spend all the time going over every last detail. He takes over Kemri, um, yeah. and there's one thing to note about this that is worth making clear so that you understand how much more power he's got over a very short period of time. Number one, he is not king. And he has become king. This is as legal as you can get. And all of the people think that the gods themselves will punish everyone for this. It is bad, man. But mm. he's done it anyway because he's that kind of guy. But on top of that, the mortuary cult itself is centered in Kemri where he rules. And the mortuary cult, which he was a part of, has no power to stop him. And that is something that you've really got to get into your head. He has managed to make a coup to take control because he is so much more above them all already. Yeah, like uh, Kotep and all them, like the, the ones that are loyal to the original philosophies of the Mortuary Cult, they're loyal to the idea of like working for Setra specifically and all that. They have to flee. Like they have to they have to run away from Kimri and go to the other temples, uh, the, the other uh, cities because Nagash is unstoppable to them he 
it, it doesn't help that he understands everything they're doing very well. <laughs> so he's good at messing with it. And uh, he basically starts his own version. He perverts the mortuary cult to his own theory. And he starts taking on acolytes. And this is where we meet the likes of uh, in the more modern stories. This is where he gets like Archon the Black. This is where he gets Wazorin, um in a lot of the modern stories. And he even does a very clever thing to manipulate or start kind of manipulating with the other cities. Because Nagash knows the other cities are not going to tolerate this. Um, because the the pantheon's gonna be pissed at them, and the mortuary cult can't have this guy going. Hey, you know how you know we used to give our first sons? Well, yeah, Greno, they can be king now. Like that's gonna cause huge political turmoil if they don't nip that in the bud. Um, so um, we've got um, Nagash as now effectively priest king of Camry, and this is not a short period of time. We're not talking five years he rules, ten years. It's a good couple of hundred years that he rules. And his age begins to catch up with him because that's what happens. And this is where the elixir of life that he eventually creates comes into uh, place. And much as you'd imagine from the vampires that attempt to copy it later, it starts off with blood. It starts off with an elixir that comes from the blood. Now, different versions will say slightly different versions of how this came to pass. But ultimately, people, as they wander around, are walking, talking repositories of the winds of magic because they gather it through their life, through mm. their very actions. It gets into their blood with the gyron. Their passions drag, drag down the actuary. And people carry magic in a way that down in Araby and the, what is the lands of the dead, there isn't that much of it. The winds have petered out to a degree by the time it gets down there. So what gets picked up by the people makes an enormous difference. And he learns a method of distilling the blood to create the elixir of eternal life and importantly, eternal youth. And that changes again everything because it now means that he can pass that on to some folks and make some pretty loyal pals yeah and he has all the time in the world um yeah. at least from and the a lot of the cities do not like nagash but you know they try fighting him a few times and they're not really unified yet because the cities are opposed to one another there's a lot of political strife there's a lot of conflict and everyone kind of has it in their head that oh well if kimry's kind of out of the equation that means one of us could become the new capital. One of us mm -hmm, could become mm -hmm. the new big important guys. So there isn't a great unified assault against the gash for a long time. And the few times they do encounter him, his sorcery is just, it's too big. It's too strong. Yeah. And it's also worth noting. He also does one other enormous thing during this period mm -hmm. um, because he's now mastering his magics. He's not at the point where he's um, coming to the conclusion as in he's reached his peak. He's really mastering his magics at this point and he realizes he just can't get enough of this shit. There is mm -hmm. not enough down in the lands of the dead for him to do any great workings. He can figure it all out and he can actually put two and two together to get four and say this should work but the spells peter out and do nothing. And this is in many respects the foundation point for the Black Pyramid of Kemri. Yeah. As he now goes, well, I now need a method of gathering the magics to the center of my power, and the building begins. And his building is not small, as it's put in one of the uh, various sources, I forget which one, but his Black Pyramid in comparison to Cetra's, Cetra's was 
considered to be the most enormous building you could ever imagine. It was in Kemri, a great white pyramid, which was looked after by the mortuary cult. And they're spilling it with unguents. They're keeping Cetra's soul in there throughout the course of the time. And it is an exceedingly powerful magical artifact in its own right. It's considered to be huge, bigger than the good old pyramid down in Egypt, if you want a comparison. Along yeah. comes the Black Pyramid and makes that pyramid look like, well, a tiny little mule in comparison <laughs> to an elephant. It's truly huge, this one. And it's truly huge and created to specific geometry for a reason. And it's channeling all of the winds into one place so that he can do far bigger, far more capable workings of magic. Yeah, and uh, it ties really well into the whole thing of Nehekarn magic relies a lot upon ritual and very specific construction. Um, the Nehekarns were super, they didn't have a lot of magic to work with. So everything that they built, like the, the way they designed statues and their cities and all that stuff, a lot of it, whether they, I'm sure they did realize it, um, but like a lot of the Necrotex designed things because it was meant to channel magic. It was meant yep. to try and guide magic along certain paths. And Nagash takes that and takes everything he learned from all the different sources and, you know, he's building up his nine books, which are very, very famous and epic and legendary. And he makes the construction of the Black Pyramid. Thousands and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people die horribly constructing it because Nagash does not care. He does, he does he not value don't. life at all in the slightest. So it's um, worth saying that uh, during this period when he's building his Great Pyramid, uh, one big thing is worth being very aware of and that's that he has to tax like a bastard to bring it about and this makes him deeply unpopular deeply unpopular not only are loads of people dying but all the other kingdoms around him are being called upon to provide extra resource extra resource the black marble that he's using has to be shipped from pretty much the other side of the empire um, and these are not a unified people, but he's still demanding things and demanding things. And that brings a great deal of disenchantment from all the other uh, kings across the Nehekarin Empire and eventually turns to outright war. Yeah, the kind of the funny thing is it's not it's not the sacrilege that really ends up undoing the gash um, in this first big war. It's that he's he puts too much pressure on all the other cities. He he kind of gets impatient. And even though he kind of figures out, um, I, I would say that until he finishes the Black Pyramid, he doesn't really demonstrate the ability to have like unstoppable legions of, of like undead because he's not able to rely on them as easily for like constructing the Black Pyramid because there's just not enough for him to work with. Um, but he is strong enough to threaten all the cities and say, if you don't comply, I'm going to come over there and mess you up and I'll take all your citizens and make them into slaves. So mm -hmm. you better keep sending me stuff. And this is what unifies all the cities against him. Yeah. Um, the seven kingdoms as it's often referred to. Yeah. yeah. So everybody gets together and a huge war breaks out. Huge war. Yeah. War. Huh. Whoa. Whoa. And what's it good for? It's good for binding together the mortuary cult against Nagash. And it's the first time that they actively say Nagash is actually wrong and is bad. And we're going to war with him. This is quite different to what they were doing before, where they were sort of going, yeah, he's not great, but, you know, we'll work around it. Yeah. You know what he's doing? Mm. A bit dodge. The, but the gods will take care of it. 
Yeah, it'll be fine. The gods, the gods. They're now saying he's going against the gods. The gods have a very specific set of ways we're supposed to be doing things. He ain't doing it that way. And not only is he not doing it that way, he's going against it in multiple places. And this this whole elixir that he's using, the people that are using it are just wrong. Your Arkham, the Blacks, for example. And and he's just a bit wrong. And at, no, screw it. We're going against them. And that's when we get our first real Ushabti coming around, is the gods themselves start taking to war alongside what will become the proper Tomb King army in, in the end. Um, so along they come. We've got our big sphinxes popping along. And they're effectively going against what is the first real undead army uh on the other side we have arkan the black doing his thing we've got skeletons coming up for the first time actual skeletons without souls this is not the souls of their previous occupants coming mm. back and working through their no, old these are puppets this is just puppets this is completely different to any type of necromancy that has been seen before in fact it's the birth of true necromancy and this war is desperate particularly desperate for nagash because he's going to lose. Yeah, and um, something, it's like, Nagash is super strong at this point. Like, the Black Pyramid, he finishes it, and it yeah, does, does give him an obscene amount of, granted, it doesn't have necessarily as much time as it will have later to charge up, because although it can store the Winds of Magic, that's the thing, it's a big battery. It draws magic to it, and it stores it, but that doesn't mean it started off full. And uh, Nagash is still, in many ways, human. Uh, he's human adjacent <laughs> at this point. I, I would argue he's almost, other than the fact that he's taken an elixir, which effectively allows him to maintain his eternal youth, he still looks from the outside 100% human. Yeah. Um, if you look at him, you'll look at him and you will see someone who's clearly a Nehekarin. Um, He's got the uh, general features of a Nehekarin. He's not a gigantic undead skeletal yeah, cat. No. He, still... he just looks like a dude. Yeah, it, 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 you would. Most people would feel relatively confident that if you stabbed him in the heart, he would die. <laughs> yeah, at this point. So, uh, big fight. Uh, in later, you know, in more modern versions of the story, this is when Nagash has his nine Mortarks, but they're all kind of these immortal guys that are running around fighting. They're all very scary in their own ways. Most of them know how to use magic, uh, at least mm -hmm. to a decent degree. Archon the Black is the most powerful next to Nagash himself. He's Nagash's most favorite servant because Archon is exceedingly loyal. Yeah. Um, the novels paint him in a very different light, which I'm not a huge fan of, but in the... I do not like that either. In, <laughs> yeah, in the modern stories and a lot of the old stories, Archon is disturbingly loyal. And it's usually mm -hmm. because he was in a really not great place and Nagash raised him up because he was so efficient. And Nagash didn't care if you're nobility. Nagash didn't care about royalty. He didn't care if you were favored by the gods. Will you do what he tells you to and you'll do it well? Welcome to the team. Welcome to the Quite. party. And there's a couple of things to add here because this, this small scene, which is arguably utterly essential to Nagash and mm. where he goes, takes a couple of different forms. So it's worth very quickly detailing the different ones. Importantly, it is how does this elixir of eternal life work? Hmm. Now, according to most, almost all now, of the sources, and you could argue the 8th edition army list doesn't quite suggest this anymore, but it doesn't deny it, um, it makes you quite averse to sunlight. You don't like it. Now, it doesn't mean you burst into flat fire, vampire-wise, but it most certainly means that you are averse to it. If you go back to, however, the 4th edition army list, so this is where Nagash was first put in, um, when the he loses, Kemri is taken, 
the Black Pyramid is raided. They go through all the traps and they take out all of um, his closest servants who've been necking um, the elixir of eternal life. <laughs> yeah, they pull not... them out. They burst into flame and die, which is not so good. Um, mm -hmm. In later versions, instead, what happens is Archon, uh, Archon, Parmi, and all the rest are yanked out of the pyramid and they are killed. One way or another, whether they burst into flames, whether they die through another matter, doesn't really matter in the greater scheme of things. They all die, but they yeah. don't find the gash. Yeah, and it, it, I think it's worth exploring that uh, there's a lot of interesting things that you could look into as far as why sunlight does that, as far as sunlight in many in the Warhammer world, just like in our world's mythology is seen as a very purifying force. Uh, I would argue it probably has a lot of hish associated with it, um, which might be fairly anth uh, antithetical to them because they're not fully normal creatures. They have a lot of magical evidence uh, or uh, uh, essence sustaining them at that point, and hish does not like that stuff. It breaks it down. Um, and also... Tra is, uh, by this point, I would argue he's almost the second most powerful member of the Pantheon as opposed to the most powerful because Usirian is just nuts by this point because he's got all those souls Jaff in his well. underworld with him. Um, and Jaff as well. Um, yeah. The the yeah totally. uh, but uh, Tra is still a big boy and he uh, he's, he's that father of that Pantheon and he does not like what's going on. And I think that there's a lot to be said that the combination of factors, yeah, I would absolutely believe that Nagash and his buddies, uh, Sunlight's probably not their favorite thing. But um, as we said, seven armies come to fight Nagash. They keep beating him back. It's a horrible war. A lot of people die, but ultimately the Nehekarns triumph because they're, they their mastery of their forms of magic and the fact that the gods are really heavily involved to the mm -hmm. point where the Nehekarans are literally able to bring back the Nehekaran dead and put them inside statuary that uh, can match Nagash's undead and are way stronger. You know, they're not made of feeble bones and rotten flesh. No, they're stone and marble that's moving and just crushing bodies and cutting through and Nagash just can't stop it. <laughs> it's, it's too much. Nagash just can't find a way to stop it. Yeah, and when you look at the Abshadti that come as well, they are quite literally effigies of the gods themselves coming in to crush and squash folk. You know, um, something that actually caught me off guard, this is a total aside, but I just want to say because I like found it aside. interesting. Um, I'm pretty sure in the old lore, the Ushapti are mo like they're controlled by the gods themselves, if I remember right. Yeah, when they're very first introduced, um, they're very much uh, empowered by the Lich Priests in that they're the ones that bring it about but then the gods pretty much take over and go stomp 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 and they're the ones yeah. that are largely yeah. responsible for i thought it. that was still the case in this book but it's not it's yeah not and, really yeah in this book they're like all the other nehekarn statuary where it's literally just a dead nehekarn soldier is put into them and it's like go have fun new body yeah it's a touch more necron um in yeah. terms of how it's uh, presented. Anyway, that doesn't matter. So yeah, yeah. uh yeah, Nagash <laughs> loses and Nagash is the the there's a siege at the Black Pyramid. Nagash and all of his guys retreat to the Black Pyramid because that's where they're at their strongest, and they still lose. <laughs> and Nagash Ooh, yeah, Nagash, um the 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 I think the best version of the story because it demonstrates a lot about Archon is that Nagash thinks he's gonna win and he's standing outside and when he realizes he's gonna lose he starts running away into the black pyramid and all of the kings and their greatest soldiers try to go after him but archon blocks the way yes, and archon is literally a one-man army like he's fighting everybody off and according to the uh eighth edition story my favorite version of the story it's actually an unknown soldier that kills him someone throws a javelin and just through pure dumb luck it hits archon in the heart and as archon is dying 
he utters a curse that says any man that tries to move my body will suffer a death that will destroy your soul, which to the Nehekarns is literally the scariest concept in existence. Uh, they don't dying for them is kind of whatever, but your soul being obliterated. Oh, um, and Archon collapses to the ground and very dramatically his body bursts into flames and all that's left is a charred black skeleton, Archon the black. And, uh, he's literally just a skeleton sitting there with a javelin through his chest and nobody touches him and they can't get around him. So they just go, you know what? Screw it. We're going to go in a different way. So they move around and they find other entrances. But by that point, uh, like Andy said, they find all of the other Mortarks and all the other generals and stuff, drag them out. They're all butchered or burned up in sunlight, whatever. And they finally get to Nagash's sarcophagus. They rip it open and he's not there. There's nobody there. Um, and it's also uh, worth adding one small detail and several versions of the background for this story here. The Mortarks or whatever particular name you're going for them at this point, they're all pretty much sleeping in sarcophaguses themselves by this mm. point. They are effectively archetypical vampires, but not actually vampires. They're prototypical, might yeah. be a better way of putting it. Proto-vampires, yeah. <laughs> They're proto-vampires, but in many respects, much better because they don't carry any of the curses or any of the downsides. But in one respect, much worse, because Nagash actually needs to give them the potion. And almost all versions of the background say this, although it's skimmed over an eight, whether once you've taken it, you've got it forever, or whether you have to keep on necking it. But most of them suggest that Nagash controls them and maintains loyalty by parceling it out, because he keeps that secret in one of his books of Nagash and ensures that nobody else gets that secret. Yeah, what I what I honestly think is, I, I could have swear I've seen this written somewhere, is that I believe he gives himself and Archon a pure version, where it's a one and done you're good and he gives the others a not as good version like he that dilutes it for me. uh because be so he can control them because he yeah. knows they're like black-hearted fiends and thieves and the, just the worst and you will find um repeatedly over the course of time as nagash progresses as a character he constantly doubts others and manipulates and controls so you often find when someone randomly arrives it's because he's been manipulating them from afar to arrive often because they themselves use necromancy and he is largely the one for a better word as it will become the god of necromancy but he mm. used his necromancy to control others um yeah. so yeah nice yeah so the gash is gone and the priest games go well he's gone <laughs> and they they start and they kind of start falling among themselves as far as politics they start arguing and it's uh the king of uh lamia uh which i want to say is lamash's zash at this point i think it's i think it is but yeah which is neferata's dad for anyone that's keeping yeah. track uh he had the most dramatic impact on the war and everybody really liked him so he gets he takes over kemri uh he becomes the priest king kemri so he leaves home and he tells his son lamash Azar or Lamashizah to go home and says, you go back, you're in charge with your, your sister now, go do stuff. So at this point, Nagash vanishes and yep. we, we find him later in that he had nowhere to go because he didn't think he could lose because he's arrogant as hell. Uh, so Nagash is wandering the waste. Uh, he goes about, he goes northeast. Eventually. Uh, yes. Although um, it's worth stating, this is not a short wander. Hmm. Um, it's almost three and a bit centuries of wandering, and it's left very, very 
opaque as to what occurs during this. There is one source that says he dies during this period, but doesn't, strictly speaking, die because of his mastery of necromancy and instead passes over into what will have a variety of different names depending upon which theology you follow, but the lands of the dead and gains a depth and an awareness and an understanding of the place that is quite beyond anything that any other human mortal had achieved. But eventually... He does indeed go northeast, and he finds himself at the banks of the Sour Sea. Yeah, and it's it's worth pointing out that his death. Uh, I've I've seen two or three different versions that say he does die on this journey, and one of the really interesting ones says that he doesn't even realize he dies. Like yeah, he basically absolutely. he's so he's so exhausted and mm-hmm. uh, beaten down. Like he was wounded in the fighting. He's not in good shape. And as far as he knows, he's just been stumbling onwards, but eventually his body gives out. And oh, his, it's only 50 years he's away. It's 300, but he's at the other bit. Sorry, pardon me. Just no, you're, myself. okay. So 50 years is a really fucking long time. It's still a long time, but it's yeah. 50 years. <laughs> yeah. And he doesn't have like any food or water. He's in the desert and he dies. And a lot of versions say that eventually he, by wandering, he finds his way back to his mortal form. And he basically, because of his knowledge of necromancy and all this stuff, crawls in, back into his own body and just wills himself to move because nagash yeah and that's <laughs> it's something we're saying that something nagash has actually a lot of parallels with setra they are very very similar in a lot of ways um both of them their obsession with avoiding uh or controlling better death they both and one thing that's actually interesting is setra like nagash wanted to learn magic and he actually does through brute force but Setra didn't have dark uh, dark elf teachers. He only had the secrets of the mortuary cult. So he learned enough that the cult couldn't like manipulate him because he mm. knew how to kind of work their stuff. But Setra is a very, very, very weak wizard. He's a very weak wizard because he has such a basic understanding of it. And that pissed him off a lot. But he learned that just through pure like brute force, which is insane. If you know, like the fact that Setra forced himself to learn magic is bonkers but anyway um so they have a lot of these parallels but nagash makes his way back to his body in a lot of versions of the story my favorite version of the story um and he gets up and like andy says he makes his way to the sour sea where he finds something very interesting the sour sea now there's a reason it's called the sour sea it's called the sour sea because there is a uh, water that's coming from a mountain very close by a mountain that will one day be called cripple peak and there's a reason it's called cripple peak mm. and this water is filled with warp stone it's filled with magic and he gets there and he senses it he starts drinking it he becomes almost obsessed by it because of what it immediately provides him. Now, he's he's been wandering around. The winds of magic itself are growing stronger as he goes north. But this is completely unlike that. And he, as a master already of dark magic, someone who can sense the power that's lying within here, follows that power to its source. A long time ago, a chunk of warpstone had struck into the side of Cripple Peak. And it had struck right down into the depths of it. And this piece of warpstone, according to most sources, is the biggest single chunk of warpstone that exists in the Warhammer world. It won't be forever. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. it can get depleted in time. But at this point, it is actually enormous. A yeah. huge chunk of pure magic. 
Welcome to Nagash, moving from being Nagash the not exactly mortal, but certainly human, to Nagash the, oh my goodness, my flesh is melting away because I am using this stuff and consuming it, and importantly, controlling it. Yeah, one of the things that's, uh, like Andy said, this... This mountain was a big mountain, and this warpstone meteor obliterates it. <laughs> like it just destroys this mountain and eats it. It's kind of like a mini great maw. Um, yeah, is, is a I really good way to think Sour of it. Sea, that big compute, that largely the crater that struck into it. So the Sour Sea has formed into the crater where it went, and the mountain itself has the warpstone chunk embedded at the bottom, and it needs to be mined to even be accessed yeah and uh and what's interesting is it it gets buried because it caused so much destruction but there wasn't anything around it so it's not like the great maw which was probably bigger but like hit a civilization and immediately transformed and a bunch of crazy shit happened um this was out by itself there was virtually nothing out there and like it was uh and it is left undisturbed for a very long time so nagash like he says drinks with the sour sea and Nagash, one of the things that's very unique about him that is really interesting is Nagash. Nagash is a very particular form of arrogance compared to a lot of characters in the Warhammer world, where a lot of the characters we get that tend to be like the arrogant villains care a lot about their appearance mm -hmm. or about uh, maintaining like a certain visage. Nagash is, de is deliberately pointed out as being unique in that he does not give a damn what he looks like. He doesn't care how monstrous he becomes. He doesn't care if he looks human. All he cares about is power. Yeah, and I would say that this is the point when that absolutely becomes the case. Previous to this, he was a priest king. That's what he thought of himself as, a priest king. A priest king with high levels of arrogance and high levels of, I want to control everything, but nevertheless, a priest king. He's out. He's been ousted. He's broken. He's been wandering the wastes for 50 years. He's possibly died and wandered further than just simply the wastes. He's found himself this great source of magic. And what does he do first? He becomes a priest king again. And this is something that's often sort of sidelined. But over the course of the next 200 years, he builds another empire, mm. a massive empire around Nagashazar. He uses his necromancy to not just create undead and automatons to help him do all of his great works he uses it to help build an enormous fortress arguably according to some sources the biggest bastion in the warhammer world they often forget about it because the games workshop never really uses it it's always something that's down there that yeah, exists to be fair, really nothing near it <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's nothing else there. there um and and the he gets tribes in they worship him as a god and we're not talking about a small number of people here we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who are mining for him who are getting warp stone dust who are getting warp stone who are building a huge fortress and a network of fortifications around it Nagashazar, the entire place that he eventually builds is an enormous fortress with an enormous number of troops and they're not just undead as many people like to think of mm. the guy Indeed, the undead are outnumbered by the living because all of the local tribes pretty much become his mates because, well, he's a god mm. to them. He also changes and changes big time. He moves from being just simply the priest king to slowly sloughing flesh. To begin with, it's just muscle over bone and slowly that muscle begins to go as well. His repeated use of warpstone in a fashion that is far heavier and far more drastic than even the Skaven 
uh, uh, attempt. Yeah. Completely minces him. His eyes bubble out in terms pus-filled pits of yellowy green <laughs> horror. He he massively, for want of a better word, mutates. He increases in size and he gets bigger. His bones lengthen, his body changes, and it reaches the point where he can't control it anymore and it goes beyond his ability to properly harness using his dark magics. So he builds himself a set of armor to encase himself inside, to completely bound it up and to help bind the great magics he uses lead as uh, not a complete diminisher he doesn't use obsidian but to help control mm. it and gromrel this is something that you don't often hear it's made of star metal gromrel his armor is gromrel and lead moratane the black armor yeah fucking right um and and he builds this himself to constrain himself and this is when he's effectively almost the nagash we all know and love he is a much bigger individual by this time. By the time his armor is created, that pretty much grounds him into place. And it's also at about this time he starts having massive problems because he's not the only one that's interested in the warp stone. Yeah, and I think it's worth uh, stepping back um, into that kind of 300-year period of Nagash does a, some really interesting things at this point when he, because, you know, he drinks with the sour so he figures out, oh, it's coming from this mountain. He goes in the mountain finds the warp stone he starts feeding on it um and like yeah the gash literally eats raw warp stone which is nuts <laughs> like nobody does that um but he does because he just doesn't care and he's very power hungry and power mad and he's never seen anything like this like even the dark magic even the magic in the black pyramid nothing like this yep um and uh, like Andy said, he builds Nagashes are on top of this warpstone thing, and it's literally as the warpstone's being mined out, another layer's added, another layer's added, another layer. Like it's it's like a dwarf hold, except for bigger in a lot of cases. Fucking huge, and and, and and you can't cannot underestimate how much warpstone was there. Yeah, and also like Andy said, there were a lot of human tribes. Um, uh, as something that we know about like the Empire and stuff is a lot of humans actually migrated from the Darklands. Yeah. um and like kind of that area and like in our world humans tend to be in areas where there is ocean or rivers or things like that and the brittle peaks had a lot of these waterways now obviously they had some corruption in them um mm -hmm. which probably caused some interesting issues but but you know the there were a lot of people living around these oceans along the southern coast far away from uh, what would eventually become chaos dwarf lands yep. and these people are kind of taken nagash notices them and he kind of starts going down to them they worship him as a god because mm -hmm. he is immensely powerful and these nagash does some really fucked up stuff to these people and he introduces to them a ritual of cannibalism the feasting yes the, uh, and he creates the first ghouls like yeah, ghouls ghouls were my mistake <laughs> yes ghouls were actually not a naturally occurring process um except for like because in in later lore we get it kind of more established that there are ways that cannibal creatures can show up but they're very rare and it's very specific circumstances nagash factory produces that shit <laughs> yeah, it does. and it's it's not an intended part all the warpstone dust that's uh created by the mining all of the the corruption that is inherent in that warpstone being there seeps out into his people and his worship in turn is pretty damn dark um and yeah, yeah. it's drawn more dark magic in yeah absolutely. just drawn it in 
Um, and that extraordinary concentration of dark magic in what is his empire uh, makes significant changes on the people that are there. It does form the first ghouls. It arguably forms a lot of other issues as well. There's one other fun fact that's worth dropping in here too because his empire actually extends far into the Darklands. It mm. extends in both directions and one of the areas that he takes over there is effectively a giant dragon graveyard yeah and the dragon graveyard yeah white um and the very first zombie dragons um are made by nagash during this period and he rides one of those fuckers around because he's nagash god That's damn it fucking awesome and I mean, how awesome is that one enormous zombie dragon with nagash sitting on the back of it that needs I to be a legacy model. That model. oh That's that would such be amazing a, yeah so um and uh yeah so anyway he makes a lot of big discoveries adds even more to his nine books uh like mm -hmm. we were talking about what was going on with the because fun fact cannibalism will actually draw dark magic to you like the, mm -hmm. the process of eating human flesh will literally draw dark magic in um which is why you shouldn't do it <laughs> it's that's why it in the warhammer world it is heavily uh the warhammer world has a really interesting perspective on cannibalism of that the writers actively have this thing of people do it out of desperation but even if you do it for morally justifiable reasons you cannot escape the dar and it the will dar. affect you unless mm. you're just like an immensely willful individual that's how morngols are created for instance is often people that are caught in the mountains in the horrible cold and they eat people to try and survive and it brings dark magic to them and they degenerate into something way worse than a ghoul but that's a very specific type of that transformation Whereas ghouls are the more common. Yeah, yeah, totes. And there's an actual reason for that if you want to go down into the lore a little bit. I'll very briefly lighten it. Animals don't have all the winds of magic inside them because Heish, which is the source of intellect, the source of actual imagination, is not really in animals. Um, they do not have a higher in intellect where the higher various species do uh, quite a chunk of heist just sitting in their heads and that mixture of all the magics is what effectively when you combine it together creates dar and upon death all of the various bits begin to corrode and all mixed together so whatever magic was held inside that body effectively becomes a small source of dar you start dropping yourself down into cannibalism you are taking your first steps towards consuming dar there are ways around it but for the vast majority of people they do not know those ways yeah so around this point nagash is building up building up building up building up and like he is he's still thinking about revenge big time mm. but nagash is patient he's very patient he's got all the time in the world and he's just building up and he starts forging a lot of artifacts like andy said he forges his armor i believe he forges the crown of sorcery in this time he does um the um if i'm running if i'm getting this right let me see so the the skaven attack first and then he forges his armor afterwards because he ne realizes he needs it so as i recall the skaven attack first they have they want the warp stone because it's yeah. a, the yeah. biggest chunk that much warp, warp stone and the gash is mining it it's um, being used so Lord gets out skaven, <laughs> um come up from underneath and they basically go to war with the gash and that lasts for a hundred years it's not a short war the council of 13 want this shit this is their shit as far as they're concerned and eventually nagash comes to uh deal with them he basically says just fucking stop yeah it's still I'll, yeah and i no. will give you some uh warp stone in return in fact why don't we work together you do stuff for me and i will give you warp stone 
You do stuff for me, and I will give you Warpstone. And that is what ends that part of the war. But nonetheless, the Council of Thirteen are enormously suspicious. They're scathing. Of course they are. Um, They can't help themselves. And then the great seam of Gromwell is exposed by an impact, and that is when he makes his armor. Yeah, and and once again, another point in how powerful Nagash has come at this point, in that he's able to wield necromancy powerful enough that the Skaven, well, it kind of shows how scary both the Skaven and Nagash are, of yeah. that the Skaven are used to just overwhelming. Um, you know, they've crippled the Dwarf Empire by this point. They've they've had a pretty solid stream of victories in a lot of ways, and they go they go fight Nagash and they realize they cannot beat him because mm-hmm. Even if they have a great attack and they kill a lot of guys, he just resur- like they fight using mass numbers, and that is the worst strategy to use against a necromancer. Amen to that, because <laughs> he just turns <laughs> it against you. Uh, but Nagash realizes that he can't deal with them either. He he doesn't he doesn't really understand what the Skaven are. Uh, he doesn't understand where they're coming from, <laughs> and, and they just don't freaking stop. Yeah, and of course the Skaven aren't risking anybody actually important. You know, it's just mass hordes, and occasionally yeah. they'll throw something weird at him, like a monster or machine or whatever. And the Gash is he wants to focus on his own shit. He doesn't want to deal with this. And so, like Andy says, he makes a deal. And uh the the deal is actually super interesting that the Skaven, they bring him a lot of uh they basically are kind of like super nasty messengers and assassins for him. They bring him information, he starts learning about what's going on in the Hikara. The Skaven start feeding him different little things he wants to know. They bring him various little pieces of info and relics and artifacts. They also bring him orcs. Then yeah, they, said, they bring him a ton of orcs. Orc, and they they don't so much bring them as in here's my mm. bag of orcs. What yeah. they do is they drive orc tribes down towards them, which are used for a mixture of sacrifices, and later are used as they channel them towards the lands of the dead in the south and start the first steps towards what will become Nagash's war with them. Yeah, Nagash, uh, that's the big part of his deal. Yeah, is that he asks them, "I need you to direct as many orc tribes here as possible." Mm-hmm. And the Skaven are like, yeah, we can and for, and I will give you a <laughs> literal cartload of Warpstone in exchange. Mm-hmm. And the Skaven, and like Andy said, the Skaven do think it's weird. They don't understand why he wants that. And, but they kind of, they kind of do this funny thing where because they're Skaven, they're like, all right, whatever. We don't give a shit, but they do keep spying on him. Yeah. Um, they're they're short term goal uh, species. Yeah. And hey. <laughs> Clan Eshin, they're good at their job. Like even the Gash with all of his senses and stuff, Clan Eshin does actually manage to do a good job keeping tabs on him. But Nagash is very secretive and he doesn't explain his plans to anyone. Uh, he hasn't resurrected Archon at this point. Like he's literally just doing his own little thing. Um, so nobody can really figure out what he's up to. Um, yeah, it's also worth saying that um, we've got a 100 year war here. So everything that the Skaven can do to beat him, he's already defeated. So be aware that means all manner of assassins, all manner of different types of attack have failed. And during this period, the Council of Thirteen moved from being we can take him to actually being terrified of him because everything they've tried has failed completely. They just can't do anything. And not only has it failed, he hasn't grown any weaker at all. If anything, he's grown more powerful. And the more they throw at him, the more he seems to grow and that's terrifying to them because that's their way of fighting as uh sotex says yeah and we're and we're talking about literally the kitchen sink like yeah. screaming bells graciers clan molder clan eshin mm-hmm. like 
pretty much every clan except pestilence because they're not here yet <laughs> but like everybody else everything and it just it bounces um quite i think we go to a meanwhile at this point yeah so there's some stuff happening down in <laughs> with the old lobby yeah, so, so i'm going to once again i'm ignoring a lot of black library novels on this particular topic because nope <laughs> this has been touched by uh, actually a couple different authors and i don't like their versions i prefer the like, the yeah the army books and the role play books yeah um but uh neferata awesome 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 character who has a lot of ambitions and wants a lot of power but she's limited due to her station as the queen of lamia because her her brother's the king she's technically the queen um and her brother she he's an idiot <laughs> and she ends up getting him killed um to get him out of the way but one of the things that uh, she does is, if I recall correctly, she wants to learn sorcery, but she's not allowed to. Yeah, um, uh, there's quite a few conflicting bits. What you can yeah, see yeah. is, um, you, when, go ahead. when Camry falls, she gets her hands on at least one, if not multiple books of Nagash from the pyramid. She's the one that gets them. Now, there's different stories how to, as to how she gets them. And let's just stick with the obvious one. She gets them herself through her agents because that's an easy one. Some of the other yeah. ones are well dodged and I don't like them. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's my preferred version as well, is that yeah, she actively sent... Uh, the Neferata, I, I think it's worth saying that Neferata knew, because everybody knew, that Nagash had figured out a better version of immortality. He had figured Absolutely. out eternal youth. And Neferata mm -hmm. says, I want that shit. I Quite. need it. I mean, who wouldn't? Yeah. yeah, like I a I want to live forever, and B I don't want the crappy version that the mortuary cult has. I want the real deal. So mm -hmm. she wants that more than anything in the universe, um, and she gets it in a yeah, sense. Yeah, she gets it. Um, and there's multiple readings of this because you've got the classic Games Workshop description of it, where vampires are bad guys. <laughs> um, you, you just it's that simple. They're bad guys, which means that the curse that comes along with this failed version of replicating the potion is horrendous and it's awful and they have to drink blood now. But there's also another reading of this. When you look at what the original elixir of eternal youth for once of a better description could do and what she creates out of it, she creates a version that doesn't require any reimbibement. It doesn't require you take it again. So if you believe that the previous version required taking it every once in a while, she's found a different one. You just need to take blood instead. Take in pure magic that's being distilled through a material body. And that allows you to live for freaking ever. This is before we have all the curses that are laid upon vampires. So there's no real problem with sunlight at this point. There's no real problem with various gods smiting you down. All you have is an eternal thirst for blood, which in the greater scheme of things is not entirely different to saying we as mortals have an eternal thirst for water. We must eat food. We're starving all the freaking time. It's yeah, not that different, except, you know, blood. Taking that. It, it's worth saying it. that Neferata, in most versions of the story, she invents this. Like, yeah. it's not like she is a genius when it comes to dealing with elixirs and potions and a lot of these things, which pro probably has a lot to do with either a station she had or her involvement with. Usually she has a lot of involvements with the different cults, um, but doesn't have the power that she wants. And granted, she is often said not to be very good at sorcery and kind of yeah. struggles with it, especially at this point in her life. 
but she has very helpful agents that she relies on. Like she has Wazorin, uh, who is a very, very granted. Uh, it turns out that Wazorin is originally one of Nagash's acolytes that Nagash, I will say one of the brilliant moves that Nagash did is that Nagash faked a coup where he, he staged a whole incident where he acted like his mortuary cult betrayed him and they were trying to assassinate him and he chases them all out. He's like, ah, get out of Kimri. How dare you betray me? And so they flee to the other cities and are like, oh, we tried to fight the gash and he kicked us out. Can we come in? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then they start influencing the cities. And Wazorin is one of these individuals. He's very loyal to Nagash. He's insanely, he worshipped Nagash. Yeah, you um, can't go wrong with Nagash. The dude's a genius. Um, <laughs> and it's really easily yeah. forgotten. He wages war with the entire Skaven species and does not lose. Um, in fact, not only does he not lose, he doesn't lose any ground and expands. Um, yeah, the dude's pretty damn good at what he does. Um, so let's cut this whole part because it's not really Nagash yeah, relevant particularly. Um, she creates vampires, effectively. Um, and the rest of the kingdoms down there do not like this. They look at that and they're like, yeah, no, that's wrong. That's against the gods. We've already established just how important the mortuary <laughs> cult is to yeah. not only the uh, locals, but all of what is now the lands of the dead. Um, and they go, yeah, no. And they go to war with her. Yeah. And it doesn't help that, A, it it's very obvious to anyone that sees the vampires that it's Nagash magic. It's Nagash stuff. And they're like, hey, we got rid of that. Y'all, and yeah. we all we all said we all agreed we weren't gonna use the gash's crap. And you look what y'all are doing. And the other thing is room mm -hmm. A, there were some individuals that were very invested in toppling Lamia for various reasons. Oh, yeah. And uh they also the vampires of Lamia did not have good PR. Um, they were they were very decadent and they were assholes. And Aberash, to his credit, tried to rein them in. It, they didn't care. They told them to piss off because they were having fun. They were the worst kind of immortals where yeah. they were indulging in just awful garbage and they didn't care. So repeat of the siege of uh, Kimri and the mm -hmm. Black Pyramid and the vampires thought they were awesome, but you can't you can't defeat all of the Hekara. <laughs> it's just not going to happen, especially when it's led by uh, uh, um I don't think it's quite Alcadazar yet. Um, although oh, no, I think it's be. I a think generation he, before him. He, yeah, because he binds them all together um, afterwards because the individual <laughs> kingdoms are quite fractious at this point and the Lamians are enough to half bring them together and they almost go to war with each other. Then Alcadazar, bang, brings them all back underneath one ruling. Yeah, he is he's alive at this point. Yeah. He, I believe um, he as I recall. in the fight. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, the vampires get kicked out. Um, and they spread out and they make their way over to where Nagash is. Now, there are different versions of this story. There's only two that are worth mentioning. One is it was Nagash's plan all along. And mm. this gave him all the generals that he needed for his army. Vampires, yay! Or alternatively, them arriving lets Nagash go, holy shit, look at what they've become. Because effectively, if you want to look at them, they've got the undead trait. He pretty much can do whatever the fuck he wants with them because he's the master of undead. He sees them and goes, oh, hell yes. This is so much better than what I had before. In fact, they've managed to create themselves something that's actually better than what I've built for my generals. I love it. Great. Um, yeah. Uh, regardless of your version, he uses the vampires to become the generals of his empire. Yeah, there's actually there's some really funny versions of the story where Wazorin like reestablishes contact with Nagash because he realizes Nagash isn't dead. And that actually is what leads 
the rest of the kingdoms to discovering that Lamy is corrupt is they catch some of those missives because Wazorn was sending love letters to Nagash. <laughs> but <laughs> but, but uh, in any event, um, that is one of the best parts is this demonstrates Nagash's mastery over necromancy and that when the vampires flee, they don't even know where they're going. And they just kind of are drawn to Nagash without even realizing it. They just totally. like hear a voice on the wind or a compulsion telling them to come to this place. And like Andy said, they show up and in most versions of the story, Nagash looks down and goes, oh, these are cool. <laughs> like what? Look at you. And they present themselves to Nagash and the vamp, you know, the vampires, they want revenge against the rest of Neherkara for the destruction of Lamia, especially Neferata. And this is where a really interesting thing happens in the story where one of the last, the last vampire, to, one of the original seven um, and debatably the most powerful, depending on how you look at it, is Vashinesh. And oh, Vash Vashinesh, uh, which for anyone that doesn't know, Vashinesh later becomes Vlad von Karstein. Um, or is really? Vlad von Karstein. Yeah, <laughs> shocker. Um, but like he shows up and Vashinesh is actually a descendant in some versions of the story. He's actually directly descended from Nagash. And Nagash, like we said, very fucking arrogant. And Vashinesh has a presence about him. There's something very regal, and um, he stands out in an interesting way, which is why Neferata married him. Fun fact: um, she, uh, she was he was her first husband. Yep. Um, but um, Nagash, <laughs> Nagash goofs without realizing it at this point, because I think between the thing of Vashinesh being his descendant and also Nagash maybe not being the best when it comes to viewing. Uh, genders or however you want to call it nagash goes oh you invented vampires you're the first vampire that's cool your husband will be my general not you and uh man so fucking sexist <laughs> man would he come to regret that later yeah, but uh... that was a big mistake um i mean you've also got the nice little vampire repeated part here where um you could argue that vashinesh looks almost identical to nagash yeah. And you can argue that Isabella von Karstein looks almost identical to Neferata, if you catch them. That repeated, oh, it's my lover from the past. I love vampire gothic tales, love that shit. But anyway, that's slightly beside the point. Um, now, in some of the stories, the priest kings are, at, uh, some rebel priest kings become aware of Nagash because of all this. And they start sending emissaries up to Nagash as well and saying, hey, can we join your side? The various other priest kings, they do not like this. Um, Nagash becomes part of the bigger picture now and war is coming particularly yeah. with good old Alcadazar down there being rather unchuffed with the fact that Nagash is definitely not dead. Yeah. He takes it kind of personally and mm. Alcadazar is becomes Alcadazar the conqueror <laughs> because he starts, he, he pulls the Cetra and he, a lot of mm. people call him Cetra reborn because Absolutely. he's that scary in battle. He's a genius tactician. He's an amazing fighter. And he just starts kicking everybody's asses that uh, and unifying the cities because he realizes Nagash is coming and he knows how bad it's going to be. Well, he probably doesn't, but he thinks he knows how bad it's going to be. So he unifies all the cities and Nagash at this point pulls another borderline genius move, though it doesn't work as well as he would hope, which is Nagash wants to signify to the vampires that Vashness is in charge. And so he's like, hey, Vashness, I'm going to make you a gift. And he gives Vashness a ring, a, a ring very of power. Yeah, <laughs> a very special ring that a lot of you are probably familiar with when it comes to Vlad von Karstein. 
Oh, yeah. And he tells them, as long as you have this ring, you cannot die. You will be truly unkillable, which is like, hell, what a gift. But what Nagash doesn't tell him until he puts it on is it also binds him to Nagash's will. And yep. it because Nagash never gives anything freely. He does not do that. Uh, if if the guy gives you a gift, <laughs> run away. One hundred percent. Yeah. So uh, and Vashinesh realizes this pretty much the instant he puts on the ring of yep. that all the vampires are now directly under Nagash's control because Nagash doesn't really give a shit about them. Uh, the ring also lets him control the other vampires. Don't yeah. Oh uh, yeah. It their shared it, connection because they all pyramid scheme. Yeah, they they all share a connection through that mm -hmm. elixir that they all drank from and then their descendants because they all gave them the blood kiss. So Nagash in one fell swoop just gets all of them. Yep. Um, dick move um, and a good way of turning them all against you whether that was the intention or not. Yeah, um, and, he could have uh, been diplomatic about it but Nagash yeah, doesn't yeah, do yeah. diplomacy. Uh, yeah, he he, yeah, no, he doesn't. Um, so it's time for a bit of the old war. Huh. Yeah, whoa, the, second, the second great war against Nagash. Nagash oh, yeah. comes down from the north, and the first thing he does is he like kind of borderline smites Kemri of that he he re he you know he's always been able to establish connection with the Black Pyramid, but now he comes back in force and it's had hundreds of years to charge up. Mm -hmm. And so this thing is full of dark magic, and the first thing he does is he resurrects Archon the Black. Like because Nagash he the, you could are i would almost be hilariously uh if this spawns fan art i'd be so happy i would almost suggest there's almost a little something extra going on between those two because the gash instantly is like i gotta get my boyfriend i gotta go pick him up <laughs> go get me boy back yeah come so on Archon. and archon's just been sitting there literally nobody's touched him the curse has passed down for generations and archon gets up and goes master what do you need me to do and he's like come back you know, you're, you're my Mortark return to me and mm -hmm. Archon gets. And one thing is, this is actually another big snub to the vampires is Archon returns this lich who they don't even know who he is. Like they've heard about him, but like none of them ever met him. And Nagash goes, he's in charge. Mm -hmm. He's your boss. Uh, which does not go over well. Like Wazorin is literally the only one of the vampires that likes Nagash. Um, and it's cause he's a, he's literally a teacher's pet. <laughs> it always has been sadly though. Poor old Nagash is a problem. Alcadazar is a freaking genius at war. No other way of putting it. An actual genius. Nagash, in his confidence, in his hubris, I would argue, is so confident that he's going to win that he pretty much just throws everything down there and assumes that it's going to come to pass. And it absolutely does not. Yeah, he doesn't even participate in the war, nope. really. Like, And that's... Once again, his level of um, arrogance, because Nagash yeah. is now, we're past the point of Nagash wanting to be the great king of Nehakara, and we are full in. Nagash thinks, I am God. Like, Yeah, he's reached, he's been worshipped now as a god for several hundred years by his own little empire up in Nagashizar. And it's not a small empire. This is a large amount of space that he controls. Yeah, it takes up pretty much the, the world southern edge world's edge mountains all yeah, around yeah, the Sour Sea and, and into the Dark yeah. Big, big, big empire. Um, and when he goes to war with them, they send down ships down the Sour Sea, down into the ocean down there. They come in from the Lamian side. The troops are coming down from that side. It is a proper huge war. And they are going to town with each other. And Nagash is not just certain he's going to win. It's already largely a done deal, except it, it, it isn't. Yeah. So he sits on his throne back home. Archon's in charge of the war. And one thing that's really important is that Ar Archon's a 
decent general, but he's not nearly as gifted as Alcaldazar is. No Anywhere Alcaldazar is leading the Kimrian or the the Nehekarn forces, he is winning. Um, like they they still have all their awesome things. They still have all their shop tea. There are mm-hmm. still all these giant statuary running around. Um, a lot of the uh, there are a lot of like powerful um entities that are active and fighting back. You know, you have got your Kimrick Titans, all sorts of cool shit. Uh, throwing down you know the nagash tries to go through the valley of kings the valley of king has statuary that literally start smashing through his armies things get crazy and yes. Sorry. The, uh, the, uh, the point i was going to is that archon makes a bit of a critical mistake and it's because of him and nagash and that they don't actually care about the vampires and they are using them as beat sticks to try and solve the problem they yep. can't beat alcatazar through genius so they try and beat him through brute force by going, hey, vampires, y'all are really strong. Go. Go fight. Really go attack. And yeah, they, they are. They're practically unstoppable, especially yeah. the likes of Aberash in them. But, Don't think that Neferata didn't create something fucking awesome. She did. Yeah, they they can easily take, like, anything, pretty much. But there's only so many of them, and they're, they get outnumbered in a lot of those fights. And Alcatazar's military genius, he he knows the vampires are very strong. So he isolates them. He isolates them, uses genius tactics that gets them surrounded, and they die. A lot mm. of them. And you've got to remember as well that the mortuary priests, of which there is an enormous cult that are obviously against these dudes, they can use light magic as well. Um, mm. And that magic is not particularly friendly to undead. Um, so they're a very powerful set of uh, magic users as well. So don't think that the vampires are going to have an easy time of it here. They may be physically extraordinary. And at this point, they don't have the same issues that modern vampires have. So they are much better. They're wandering around during the day. They're having themselves a good old laugh um, at the expense of what they think are going to be their very dead um, enemies. But, as we say, Alcadazar is actually a very, very, very good and capable general, and dominates the first wave. Utterly dominates it. Yeah, so Nagash, like, flat out loses the war. Like, uh, Archon the Black, he's very powerful, but he can't be everywhere at once, and there Mm -hmm. are individuals that can go toe-to-toe with him. Like, Grand Hierophant Katep, by this point, like, really knows what he's doing <laughs> because the mortuary cult has also increased in power over those yes. last 300 years although like they are able to take what they learned fighting against nagash and apply it to their own magics so they have also gotten much more powerful and like you have and there's also a lot more of them like the mortuary cult has tons and tons of lich priests and they are able to actively fight against these really powerful wizards it's also worth saying that um, uh, we for- focus on the mortuary cult, but we look at the overall picture. There is a lot of gods um, with them anyway. Yeah, at least 12, um, but probably more. Indeed, and probably more. They have a, um, It says in the army list alone that they've. it's not just those ones. They've got thousands of smaller gods as well, in the same way that the Empire does come modern times. Um, and all of these are working very much on the side of the as-yet-to-be land of the dead. Um, and they are pushing back hard against what is ultimately one of the biggest perversions of life that exist because these are actual undead and nobody likes this it gives everybody the creeps from the gods right down to the smallest mortal so yeah Mm. bye bye nagash you have lost 
Except yeah. Nagash is Nagash. He's also a bit of a genius because he also has a plan sitting at the back of his mind. Which there is one more critical thing that happens, which oh, is yeah. the, when Nagash fully loses against Alcatazar. Oh yeah, good it's point. The vampires, vampires. Is, don't forget that one because Nagash fucked up. <laughs> and the whole, like we said, Vashinesh, to his credit, is a genius as well. Like Neferata mm -hmm. and Vashinesh are the two big, 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 big vampires. I really yep. think. Uh, and Agreed. Neferata does not want to be involved with this. She hates Nagash. Not only did this is like the third time in her life a man has completely fucked her over. She's over it, mm -hmm. and her and Vashinesh are scheming about how to get away from him. Yep. And and Vashinesh figures out the ring only binds the vampires to Nagash if Vashinesh is alive. If he's dead, it doesn't work. So what Vashinesh does is he kind of manipulates his way, uh, likely kind of manipulating Archon into saying, oh, let me kill Alcatazar. I'm unstoppable. I can't die. I am like, I am almost as good at fighting as Abarash is. I'm almost as good as sorcery as Wazorin. I'm like, you know, I'm kind of the jack of all trades here. I I'll take care of him. And Archon goes, all right, cool. So Vashinesh goes to war with Alcatazar. And there's, there's actually a funny note of like, Vashinesh starts dueling with him and kind of realizes that, yeah, I could kill this guy, but he doesn't. And he fights with him. And then once Alcazar is like, goes in for a big kill shot, Vashinesh goes, just, he just doesn't defend himself. <laughs> so Alcazar decapitates him and Vashinesh dies. And the second he dies, all the vampires feel it. They all feel because, um, Vashinesh knew Nagash would be suspicious and Archon would be suspicious. Yep. So he really tries to play it off as, oh no, I totally died for real. And Alcazar beat me because he just <laughs> beat me. Not, you know, he couldn't just commit suicide. It'd be too obvious. So he dies and all the vampires flee. They scatter to the winds. And Nagash gets fucking furious. Curse because, time. Yeah. And the only one that comes back is Zorin. Uh, literally and like his little acolytes so of the seven bloodlines all but one abandon him and they all mm. scatter to the winds and vashinesh played it off very well where he dies and when he resurrects he immediately takes off the ring and nagash doesn't know he's alive nagash thinks that alcazar not only killed him but took his body and probably threw it in a sacred fire or something and killed him killed him mm. so uh vashinesh fades into the shadows the other vampires are gone and this is when nagash unleashes the big curse <laughs> plague time yeah well of course oh. yeah first he does the sunlight curse which is okay. hilarious oh the big curse and the vampires no point taken yes yeah, um, yeah. Sunlight uh, please curse. walk us through that Take that um so he curses the vampires the fuckers for betraying him you can no longer <laughs> go out in the sun and and arguably much like um nagash and uh the issues that he has with Petra setting up the sun god he passes that down onto all of his followers the vampires and goes there you go you fuckers that's what you get for betraying yeah me. he literally downgrades their <laughs> their immortality yeah. he's like no, um, <laughs> i'm taking your sunlight card you don't get you, this anymore you've got you've got the undead trait do you well let's now add the sun burns you trait you fuckers because you've got the undead trait and i control you um and then adds that so yeah that's the first step towards vampires becoming much more like the modern day vampires that we know yeah, so hey, make sure everyone you thank Nagash that vampires are much easier to deal with these days. <laughs> yeah, it's all because of Nagash. Other than that, you could argue that Neferata, regardless of the propaganda that spread around, did a freaking good job of getting themselves uh, an effective case of immortality. Um, yeah. yeah. 
but like Andy said, so Nagash had a plan B because although <laughs> Nagash thought he was going to win, when he finds out that he loses, he gets vindictive as fuck. Because yeah, because Nagash. Yeah, Nagash <laughs> at this point goes, you know, he literally pulls the classic move of, okay, if I can't have Nehekara, no one gets Nehekara. And he does the most bitch move ever seen, which is that. So, oh, I, it, it, there's a lovely little bit because um, you've got yourself an opponent who is an extraordinary general. So what do you do? You're given an opponent you can't fight. Yeah. So Nagash and uh, the most, the version I've read of this that I love the most is that Nagash goes to his forge in Nagash's R and he takes a bunch of warp stone and he creates a little series of these little tokens and he pours every single death curse and disease and just the most horrible shit he can possibly conjure with all of his knowledge of dark magic and necromancy and everything that he's learned and he just makes the most horrible things possible. And he calls Archon. He goes, take these and go to the, the, the source of the great river Vitae and dump them. So Vitae stops being the river of Vitae, the river of life, and becomes the river of ruin. It goes bad. And it doesn't just curse the water itself. It curses pretty much everything around it. And people start to die. As we said, an enemy that Alcadazar can't fight. Disease. Yeah. yeah. And it's, yeah. So it becomes the, becomes the Great River Mortis. And to this day, by the way, uh, yeah, which it is so, it is so toxic, even all these thousands of years later, that it quite literally, if you touch it, you will die. Yeah. It runs like, red. It's absolutely disgusting. It's not a good thing. Thanks, yeah. Nagash. Yeah, and like Andy said, it spreads. Like it's mm -hmm. it it's it literally unleashes magical disease and contagion, and nothing could stop it. Yeah, totally. And it's um it's one of those ones that because this came from an earlier version of Warhammer in its first uh iterance. So we're talking fourth edition because this was first mentioned in 1994 in terms of when it first popped up. There wasn't that desperate need whenever you bring up the word plague to immediately then say, well, it must be to do with Nurgle or the Skaven quite the opposite it's very much nagash it was his plan he unleashed a plague god damn it and that's it yeah he doesn't he don't need their he help he doesn't need <laughs> no he doesn't need chaos gods nor does he need the skaven to do this this is well within his remit um you're after all dealing with a land that's known for its big plagues its big swarms its various issues yeah they dealt um, with problems like these yeah totally so um nagash pretty much kills everyone <laughs> yep and the and the most sinister thing is there's there's one particular caveat that he added to the curse is that he mm -hmm. made it where there would be one person on the planet who was completely immune dr strange is sitting there looking at him yeah so <laughs> alcadazar starts to realize that he is not getting sick his family gets sick his his soldiers get sick everyone's dying around him and he can't die like he's he's fine he's super yeah. healthy because Nagash is so spiteful about Alcadazar defeating him that he refuses to let him die. It even goes so far as to say Nagash is using his sorcery back in uh, Nagash's are to protect Alcadazar from everything to make yep. sure he won't die. And Alcadazar loses himself to grief. Like, because I'm it's like, you know, yeah, it's <laughs> the most horrible thing imaginable is everyone you know dying to a horrible disease. And he's the only living, he's literally the last man alive in Kimri. Step one towards Land of the Dead. Yeah. And Nagash, to be extra spiteful at this point, he is so done 
with the living of Nehekara that he then calls Archon up and he goes, okay, I want you to go out and I want you to resurrect every corpse that you find and I want you to kill everything. Kill every man, kill every woman, kill every child, kill every animal, kill every plant. I want this land dead. Yep. So he didn't really lose the war. Um, he just lost the first round. Come round two, Nagash 100% wins and eventually marches into uh, Camry and takes Alcadazar in chains. Yep. Archon arrests him and mm -hmm. Alcadazar doesn't even fight. Like he's literally just sitting on his throne he's waiting broken. to die. Utterly broken. Yeah. So they take him back to Nagashazar so Nagash can. He's brought before Nagash and Nagash in very over-the-top villainous detail explains exactly what he's going to do to Al-Kadazar uh, and even tells him what he's about to do, which is Nagash came to a conclusion after the vampires betrayed him. And this is a really core thing to his character. A lot of people think that Nagash is like really stupid or a cartoon villain and does silly things, but there's, there's a core thing to Nagash, which a lot of it is fear and spite yeah. beneath his pride. And, and often as well, you'll find with him, just to add an extra detail there, that it's um, often progressive in that he has a plan, something happens, and he makes a new plan. Um, mm. And it's not the one that he had originally. He looks at it and he goes, no, because this has happened, I'm now doing this. And each time when he suffers a defeat, he inches up a little bit in terms of his megalomaniacal plan making. Yeah, so what Nagash comes to a decision about after the vampires and like, so he unleashes the plague and he's kind of brooding for a bit. Mm. And what Nagash decides is this world is flawed. And as long as every time I try and trust anyone, except for Archon, anyone I give, anytime I give anyone the slightest bit of free will, they backstab me. They fail me. They fuck me over every single time. So you know what I'm going to do? If I take the entire planet and I just kill everyone, there will be no free will but mine. And then everything will be perfect. Yep. No one can betray me. No one can fight me. There will be no more. And there's also, there, uh, there's some, there's like a, Nagash is very insane by this point uh, because of his uh, megalomania. I wouldn't but, say he's insane. I'd say that he's quite sane, and from his own perspective, from yeah. our perspective, yeah, from he's our utterly perspective. insane. There, I do think Nagash also very much sees it as there will be no pain, there will be no suffering, other than those I want to suffer. Like the world will be better. There won't be gods jer jerking us around and manipulating us. I think that's the big one, actually, um, because he comes from a place where the mortuary cult, depending on which version, not just mortuary cult, but the gods, depending on which version of the covenant you read, loosely speaking, the Nehekaran people believed that they'd made a deal to worship these gods in return for various magics and intelligence and all the rest of it. But worship was core to that. And he came into the mortuary cult that said worshipping these gods are important. And he came to despise <clears throat> that and realized that it was a lie from his perspective. You could get power from a completely different place. The gods dick people around. And by this point, he's old. He has probably seen the waxing and waning of the winds of magic at various points. The arrival of an ever-chosen that swirls around, does stuff, and then goes. And that's freaking dangerous. And that can only come about because of the gods. If you take away... All of those souls that are messing around with the Aether, suddenly it all becomes calm and there is no danger. Yeah, there's there's a lot to be said in that Nagash is kind of the 
first character that I'm aware of that ends up figuring out what Archeon later becomes obsessed with, which is the this idea of the gods suck and the the moral right thing to do is to choke them to death, to starve yep. them out so that they can't fuck with anything anymore because they don't deserve to. They're monsters. Uh, it's also fair to say that um, Nagash himself by this point is he is very much of the opinion that he is a god um mm. I, and is I, it's not it's it's that's actually that's not true it's that he thinks he is no less than the gods he thinks that the gods are horrendous manipulating creatures that etheric entities that deserve nothing but scorn somewhat like the dark elves have got a certain level of scorn towards say the chaos gods mm. um and he has nothing but scorn for these things and considers himself to be better than the gods and in many respects effectively a god he is worshipped at this point as a god by possibly hundreds of thousands of people if you're looking at just the classic sense of how the aether forms round he's already on his first steps towards true ascension actually becoming a god himself um but he from his perspective wants to become a material one one within the material world not one that lies off on the etheric side yeah which uh, depending on how your moral compass goes when you're enjoying a fictional universe a lot of people might agree with them <laughs> yeah, they might. Um, yeah. and uh so nagash uh comes up with um and i've talked about this in my top five spells video which we did some really cool little cinematic stuff for if you want to go watch the gash comes up with genuinely one of the most powerful spells that will ever be cast in the entirety of warhammer fantasy history yeah and that he legit comes up with a spell that will kill everything on the planet or at least most things on the planet and then it will resurrect everything that is dead so he can wipe out whatever's left Quite. And then he will be it. He is. So, he will be Alpha and Omega. He's it. It's worth stating that there's a couple of different versions of the first attempt at the Great Ritual um, in terms of how it was presented. Uh, in his very first iteration, um, he attempts to do almost the entire world, and that just doesn't come to pass. Um, uh, in later iterations, it's often, I'm going to do it to the land of the dead and use them as my first army for spreading out across the world. Um, and that's loosely where it's kind of landed yeah. now. To, to be fair, yeah, ultimately, it doesn't really matter if he successfully resurrected all the dead in the land of the dead, which remember, we're talking about a culture that preserved the dead so carefully that the, yeah. the cities of the dead were grossly overpopulated and larger than the cities of the living. And this was Absolutely. a huge civilization. Massive necropolises. So if he had succeeded in resurrecting all the dead in Nehekara, he would have been unstoppable. Like, Well, he pretty much did. Yeah. yeah yeah so on to the ritual uh so this ritual it actually takes a while to cast because the skaven oh, yeah. figure out what he's doing yeah. <laughs> at this point clannishan goes hey he's doing some weird shit and they see what happens to nehekara and it scares the shit out of them and they <laughs> hilariously I the, the council of 13 when you see this shit going down. my one of my favorite things that the skaven very logically deduce that Okay, Nagash hates us only a little less than he hated all these other guys. So if he's going to take over the world, that includes us getting fucked. <laughs> so, so we need to do something. Yeah, yeah, they absolutely do. And they've not been doing nothing, which is worth making clear. The Skaven have been preparing for trying to take out Nagash for quite a long time. And they've come up with not a great deal. Um, they've 
come up with plans because they're skaven. I'm more plans. Yeah. Or plans um, they're constantly voting against each other yeah 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 you, you get how it is and this has been going on for centuries and then the awareness of what's coming becomes more and more of a pressure um as we then move towards him attempting his great ritual the enormous consumption of warp stone that's about to occur the enormous ritual that he's about to do and they get fucking desperate and now they've already got a couple of potential routes and they choose one of them which is to get a sword that none of them are willing to carry not one of them they're not willing to touch it nor are they willing to go anywhere near nagash because he's too scary they know he'll die no matter who they send at him they know they will die so they just push it on someone else yeah and i i think it's worth also noting that when nagash starts his ritual it is so strong that literally every single god in the Warhammer universe goes, whoa, what is that guy doing? Um, and, and, and it succeeds. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It starts going off very well. Um, yeah. Um, and it, the Skaven, to their credit, like the Gracers, the Gracers freak the fuck out when the ritual mm -hmm. starts because they can feel it. Half the planet away, they can feel the ritual going off. Because it's that strong. Like the Slon over in Lustria are going, whoa, what is happening? Like everyone that is very magically attuned, probably a lot of mystics started losing their shit. Like it was probably scary. No matter where you were in the world, people started going, what is happening? And nobody could stop him. Yeah, He was that strong. And there's even a whole thing of the chaos gods are literally screeching at Nagash and he's laughing because he goes, it, I have locked this shit down. I'm in the material world. I have all this power. You can't stop me. Yeah, and it's, it is a truly tremendous um, ritual. Now, depending on which source you use, you get a slightly different version of what's about to occur. If you use the current 8th edition um, uh, Kemri army list, the Tomb King army list, um, it's got a slightly simplified version where they don't even really mention the Skaven, um, other than the Which mysteriously happens. <laughs> okay, and they say that the ritual didn't really work. But if you look at every other source, he finishes the ritual. He actually completes yeah. it. His job was to turn all of the land of the dead into the land of the dead, 100% successful, done. And then as he leans back, he collapses. Or alternatively, the Tomb King version, where he's caught just before he finishes. And it's up to yourself which one you think is the more uh, likely. Yeah, I, I think my favorite version is that he does succeed. I, I think in the Tomb King 8th book, it says it, it succeeds in like waves where it's like he first he awakens all the regular dead and then his ritual starts seeping into all the tombs and it slowly starts waking up the various kings and such but like setra for instance does not wake up yeah there's only uh, one that doesn't wake up etc um, yeah because it's of the because enormous the wards, of magic yeah yeah the wards have been put in places so but like cool. everyone else starts waking up and they all start marching towards nagashazar this army that's so massive it's impossible to imagine yeah, now you've got to remember that not everybody is actually under his control here because there's one group of people that aren't the mortuary cult. They're not yeah, being they're not dead. <laughs> and they're not, strictly yeah. speaking, undead. And you've got to keep that in your mind because they are watching, effectively, all of their people now go. And that's that's a thing to watch, isn't it? As yeah, everyone's I, I, waking up everywhere. What? Green eyes burning because this is the first time we've got proper necromancy that's taking out an entire, not just realm, it's beyond a realm. It's a whole empire has just been woken up. Yeah. And at this point, the Skaven perform probably, what I imagine was terrifying, but from an outside perspective would be hilarious to watch. 
which is that the Council of 13, for the first time and debatably, I think the only time in existence, comes to a unanimous vote, which is plan plan Fellblade. (laughs) Plan Fellblade! So they create the... Next to, I think, the Sword of Cain and Galmaraz, the deadliest weapon in existence. Much more deadly than Galmaraz if you go by the Warhammer rules. Um, It is by far the most powerful weapon in the 3rd edition and 4th edition and 5th edition of the game, pretty much. Yeah, I would agree, agree, though it comes with a hell of a caveat, which is what Andy was saying. Nobody wants to touch it because it's instant cancer. (laughs) kills you. It's, It's bad, man. But there is somebody who currently in the Nagish Azar, who's not just desperate, he's broken and insane and pretty much good to go. Yeah, also uh, if you want a hilarious mental image there's a note that the Skaven forge it in Skaven Blight and then they have to use a relay system of <laughs> runners <laughs> not cavalry runners to run it from Skaven Blight <laughs> to Nagash Azar as fast as they can which is hysterical it. It is which, very impressive very impressive move on the Skaven's part. But yeah, so they get the Fellblade to Nagashazar because the Skaven realize, like Andy said, there is someone who was stupid enough from the Skaven's position to wield it because they rationalize he, this guy is broken. He hates Nagash. We just gotta, we just gotta point him. And so I think there's something else that's worth mentioning here just to make sure that we don't do the thing that's very easy to do, and that's just read the words and reiterate them. We're here to try and give you a bit more context as well, mm-hmm. to try and explain that... Uh, lead box, not Obsidian box, lead box. Yeah, indeed. Um, why the hell didn't they just give it to a Clan Eshin assassin and let him do the job? Because, let's be honest, might be better than al at the job, given that he's currently broken in a cell. And it really does speak to this weapon and just how horrendous it is it requires someone who's so thoroughly broken so insanely filled with the need for revenge to kill nagash to have the ability to even touch it it is a horrendous weapon absolutely terrible the skaven have poured all of their hate into what they hope will be a god killing weapon yeah and and it's just pure warp stone like there's literally no other material it's pure refined to the deadliest point like this thing could borderline probably cut through reality if it really wanted yeah, to it's, it's a strength 10 weapon doing d6 wounds per head it absolutely sucks like um, it's i have gone against that weapon in games of warhammer <laughs> yeah. multiple times yeah and it sucked <laughs> it's one of those weapons that like if if an if a writer was like yeah this thing could perma kill demons i'd be like eh, yeah okay <laughs> like it's but in any event it um and it, it's also worth saying that no Skaven is Skaven are innately cowardly creatures. Yeah. And a just facing down Nagash is probably impossible for a Skaven and B just holding the fell blade would be impossible for a Skaven. Yeah. Um, at least in this time, obviously there are Skaven later who will, but they, it, I don't think they really realize what it is in later generations. Quite. And you've also got to remember that um, different writers will take different uh, tacks on how these weapons can be used. And when you move towards the end times, when the world is filled with magic, they'll create all manner of reasons why certain things that previously couldn't happen suddenly can. Yeah. And so um, they break into Alcadazar's cell. Mm -hmm. He has no idea what a Skaven is. He's never seen one. This random rat man breaks in and just lays a box in front of him and is like, take, just pick it up, go. 
and he doesn't understand what he and he literally thinks it's a trick by Nagash. He thinks that like Nagash is like fucking with him or whatever. And the Skaven eventually he does open it. And when he picks up the fell blade, there's one other notable enchantment on it, which is that the Council 13 and the Gracier clan, all 169 of them, are able to kind of influence him a little bit. They can kind of compel, they're like, go this way. They give Ooh. him the direction towards Nagash, basically. Yeah, and they ah. are they are putting in his head as best they can. Go to Nagash, and he wants to, which is he, something he wants to do anyway. He embraces so it. He's just seen his entire civilization wiped out by Nagash's hand. His need for vengeance, his hatred of Nagash, is quite simply beyond compare. Yeah, so he makes his way to Nagash's throne room. Thanks to the Skaven's help, they make him avoid, they kill anything that needs to be killed on the way there. They help him avoid Archon the Black and all this other stuff. And he goes, he finds Nagash sitting in his throne, looking yeah. like he's dead because yeah. Nagash is fucking exhausted. Yep. <laughs> I mean, he has just done pretty much the most powerful spell that's arguably gone off for probably since the first coming of Chaos. Maybe the Vortex. Yeah. And uh, he runs up to him and goes, Let's do this. And Nagash, one of the best parts is Nagash somewhere deep down, uh, either because of his equipment or just because of who he is, Nagash gains enough awareness to go, something's about to hit me. And he raises up his hand and his hand gets chopped off. And then he battles with Alcadazar. And it is one of my favorite battles in Warhammer Fantasy history because... Even with his hand chopped off, and the fell blade, the second it chops off his hand, those runes are eating into his very soul. And what's pretty cool as well, the initial description of that, and um, when the hand falls down, Nagash by this point is so consumed by Warpstone and so undead and powerful, the hand literally skitters away. It goes away yeah. like it just come out of an Evil Dead movie. Yeah, it's described, it's described as like a giant spider <laughs> that crawls away, which very important for later. But Oh, uh, very yeah, important for his later. His hand crawls away. And um, Nagash just starts unleashing on Alcadazar. And the other thing the fell blade can do, yeah. Council 13. <laughs> the other aspect of the fell blade is that it allows the Council of 13 to try and protect Alcadazar. And the Council of 13, very, very powerful. They have the entire Gracier clan, 13 times 13, 169 yep. members using everything and y'all know how powerful grace ears are they're pretty strong they're all together they're chanting they block the gash's first spell half the grace ear clan drops dead instantly yep <laughs> because that it's that like their brains just explode <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's worth saying that at this point nagash is effectively as close to a material god as you can get he's probably by this point maybe as much as the most powerful spellcaster almost around the world um now we can argue this and probably should do it at some point because oh yeah uh, it, there are so many candidates for that yeah. <laughs> and i could probably say exactly the same thing for several other candidates but regardless at this point nagash is insanely powerful um but is also at his very very weakest to show just how insanely powerful he actually is and he is still wiping out half the Graciers that are out there, but pretty much with a, a movement of his hand as every single spell that they can possibly throw to try and protect him start to collapse. Alcarazar is pretty much their only hope, unfortunately. Yeah, he literally barbarian rages. Yeah. <laughs> and he just 
Like it's literally said he wields. I mean, the fell blade is pretty powerful, and he literally just goes nuts and he chops the gash into a bunch of tiny pieces. Yes, he does. and the gash is just raging, mm-hmm. but there's nothing he can do. Like it just breaks him down. Dude's dead. Um, and Skaven comes swooping in, pick up all the pieces they can, and throw those into fires that yeah, will burn and never come like, back. They're warp flame forges. Yeah, totally. They're gone. As far as the Skaven are concerned, that's him dead forever. However, that claw got away, and the crown which was sitting upon the gash's fell brow is taken by Alcadazar. Yeah, because he stumbles out the room. Because the Skaven don't care about him. They they're yeah. just worried about Nagash, and they because they're you know they very very reasonably are afraid Nagash can put himself back together very quickly. <laughs> so Alcadazar wanders out of the fortress where he. Uh, different versions of the story differ, but most versions seem to say that he falls into a river and he drowns because his body well, he, is so drained. He, he throws the fell blade away first down into a crevasse yes. beside um, there, but he either A, staggers away a bit and finds himself on the other side of the mountains and then dies, or he falls in a river and he dies, or he trips up and he dies. The important, the important thing, thing yeah. is he's dead. Yeah, and he has the crown of sorcery. He has mm-hmm. it with him, and he literally dies clutching it. For... And yeah, like Andy said, all of Nagash's body gets thrown into a furnace. And I think if the Skaven had, if Nagash's hand had not gotten away and the crown had been thrown in, I do think this would have been his actual death. Yes, the Skaven would have succeeded. Um, they didn't succeed because of Nagash's preparation and because of his extraordinary power in that they had to do an awful lot to kill him. And those two last bits, the Skaven couldn't know for certain, but they gave it a yep. damn good go. They tried. Yeah. And so, failed. Yep. So the claw of Nagash gets away and is long. Nagash is literally one of those characters. Where he's like Sauron, right? He, mm-hmm. He's Warhammer fans of Sauron in a lot of ways. Yes. As long as yep. there is some piece of him still in the world, he will be back. So now we can actually skip ahead a pretty lengthy amount of time because uh, in a lot of versions of the story, because his hand is still around and the crown sorcery is still around, his body that is destroyed goes up into the atmosphere as ash and all this ash gets carried along a wind and it starts making its way back to the Black Pyramid and it goes in and it starts collecting in his sarcophagus. Drip. And it just, yeah, drip, drip by drip. drip. Takes 1,111 years. Which it's not a short villain. process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not a short process. And um, we're, and, we're not yeah. even going to touch on what happens with the crown because no, it, uh, it, does, it doesn't all matter. All we need to cash. say for all of that is that the crown ends up elsewhere. The claw is pretty much gone. The lands of the dead are largely the lands of the dead that we will come to know later. Um, because Nagash died, they all fell out of his control and the vast and majority awake. of them <laughs> are now awake. A bunch of them are mindless automatons. They don't really have much character. A bunch of them have the, all their character definitely those that are properly prepared by the mortuary cult um and the lands of the dead fall into massive civil war which eventually comes to an end when the head of the mortuary cult goes cetera come back and let's bind everything together yeah, oh, yeah. which uh yeah poor katep <laughs> that was that was not a fun fun no. day for him i think no, but it wasn't. yeah so the gash returns <laughs> i have failed yeah and it's also worth knowing the skaven take over the gashes are um, oh yeah clan 
more trick more nidric nit more uh, i can't remember don't yeah, ask me <laughs> it, it's it's something that is very deady sounding like like it's not it's like mortis but scavenized i forget yeah. which clan it is it's not more i think it's necris maybe i can't nigel um i can't recall <laughs> off the top of my head anyway, um, it's, so i'm it's, not even it's gonna a try very cool scaven clan they're very like bone they wear like a lot of skeleton bones and they're very spooky and clank uh no it's not uh mordkin clan mordkin, mordkin that might be it. Could be. i don't want to see yeah. it's anyway, one it matter. it's a skaven clan they actually get on the council of 13 uh because they're so powerful and they're insanely strong because they still have all that warp stone and they yeah. keep mining it and it is an enormous quantity that's still there don't think that this is a small amount of warp stone nagash has been both extremely frugal and also very careful with what he's um used and he's had he thought he had enough to probably last himself forever but i think we're now moving to approximately minus 40 imperial calendar when nagash goes ping and wakes up and his waking up is so it's uh what the night uh night of the restless dead but nope, uh that's, no that's the second time he wakes up oh to that's the second time. okay so the first time he wakes up he goes oh no this is this is sigmar stuff isn't it oh um, yeah we're about to hit sigmar okay. stuff but yeah I mean, so he wakes he starts up off down in the lands of the dead obviously. right 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 so he yeah, wakes yeah. up and this is this is when an event happens called the wars of the dead so mm -hmm. nagash wakes up and remember he lives in Kimri, <laughs> Black Pyramid. So Nagash wakes up. He goes outside, and you know he, his hand doesn't regenerate. Um, but he goes outside. He doesn't have his magic equipment. He doesn't have any of his stuff. But he's still insanely strong. And he walks outside, and he goes, "Okay, I'm back. I'm going to take over." But <laughs> as soon as he does that, he goes, "Hey, who's who's in charge of Kimri now?" And he finally, at long last, meets Setra. And Setra literally has that moment of, I've heard a lot about you, and I'm really fucking pissed. <laughs> and I think in some ways, Setra probably got a little bit of perverse joy out of finding out that Nagash was not fully dead, because yeah. that meant he got to kick Nagash's ass. Yeah. So um, th this is a fun time, because uh, this is the moment when you go, haha, Nagash, is he a god? The answer is no. He is a very powerful necromancer. He has come back, but he's massively weakened. He doesn't have his crown, which holds a part of his essence. He doesn't have his claw, which also holds a part of his essence. And when he comes back, he's more than powerful enough to say, right, all you undead that I did bring back, you should come to my side. But they're also more than powerful enough to say, yeah, no. Yeah, um, and it turns into a proper war because he is powerful enough to get a lot of them. Arguably, some of them fall to his side because they just don't like Cetra. Yeah, and remember, yeah, there are there are two kings that actively yeah. side with him. Like Absolutely. they have enough willpower, and they're like, "Yeah, no, Cetra sucks. This mm. Nagash guy is gonna let us do other things. Let's team up with him." But it's but, a short-lived war. Yeah, it's Cetra. Yeah, and this is when Nagash versus Cetra is actually a really fun fight because Nagash thinks he's unstoppable because of his sorcery, and he comes up against Cetra, and he beats one of the most powerful anti-magic items and like one of the most important relics in the warhammer fantasy universe which is the the brooch of usirian um which is this cool little thing that setra wears that literally makes him fucking immune to magic yeah that which brooch is bonkers love it um and, yeah. yeah and so he throws the most powerful spells he can think of at setra and they just bounce mm -hmm. and setra is on his chariot and he just every time they fight he beelines for nagash and nagash runs away because he can't fight Cetra. Cetra will body him. 
But fortunately, he's got somewhere he reckons he can go back to. His old house, back at Nagashazar. That's a good place to retreat to, right? That's going to be great. That was where his enormous empire was, but it has been 1,111 years. And how much warp stone do you think can be mined in 1,111 years? I'll give you a chance to take a guess at that bit. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, so he goes home and uh, he's a little upset. But he does, he does he, uh, this, is this when he takes the fortress in a single night? By himself, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. He walks up and goes, Ha ha, Skaven, it's time to kick ass and chew gum, and I'm all out of gum. It's revenge time. Yeah, it's a great, there's a hilarious note of, the, from the Skaven perspective, a lone wanderer walks up to their gates and goes, let me in, and they all go, ha ha ha, and they bring all their weapons and stuff, and then the entire, cl- a council of 13 clan. The entire mm-hmm. clan is massacred in a single night. Yeah, and I think that you've got to um, ensure that we try and then compare what happens here with what happened down in the Land of the Dead. It gives you an idea of how much of a war break, broke out down there, how much power the Land of the Dead has now in comparison to what it had when it was first summoned up by Nagash. But also when we move back to Nagash being up at Nagashazar, yes, it's his home and he knows the secret ways to get in to make sure that the doors open. But he's still one dude by himself and he completely takes it. Yes, he's got some potential new allies who are like, hey, God's back. Brilliant. Still, the enormous amount of power that he brings to the table just by being himself. This is not your typical Warhammer character. This is a one-man, not army, but almost a one-man realm. Yeah, one-man faction. Yeah, Yeah, pretty Um, much. Yeah, so he wipes out the Skaven, and like Andy said, he gets to his Warpstone deposit and sees it's gone. <laughs> and yeah. so once again plan fucked up he now has to fall because he in his mind he was going to come get his warp stone get what artifacts he could find of his old stuff and then go back and fight maybe nehekar some more and this point he realizes shit i can't do that so he starts feeling out tendrils and then he seizes on something and he goes i need my crown that's what i need if i can get my crown back I'll be strong enough. And so he starts building up. He makes himself a new hand out of a he lot of really nasty new iron claw, which is yeah. really awesome. And it allows him to wield his big, mighty, massive sword of avenging justice. <laughs> yep. He gets his sword back. Uh, he, he gets, I believe he gets his staff back and his armor as he well. And he does. Um, yeah. So clearly that is all some point regained at here somehow. It, um, the obvious thing is that it was still there and the Skaven refused to touch it, but that seems so super unlike the I, Skaven. Yeah, I imagine <laughs> they, they probably tried to destroy it and just couldn't. Yeah. Like, they but they the the there's definitely something weird going on here, and it's not really given a very clear answer, but he gets his shit back, and he just wants his crown, possibly his claw, if he can find the fucking thing. Yep. So, uh, he gathers Archon the Black Doom, he gathers mm-hmm. a big army, and he starts mm-hmm. just feeling out for the crown, and he senses it somewhere mm-hmm. north. So he starts mm-hmm. wandering up, and this is where we actually get a very pivotal scene for Nagash, where as he's on his way, he senses another powerful presence. And he goes, oh, that's weird. In the, I think the Middle Mountains. Um, and he follows it and he finds a burial tomb of a warrior named Krell. So that's in the Grey Mountains, the Mound of Krell. Grey Mountains, that's where yep. he went. Um, beside a big, huge glacial lake. So he didn't um, go this way, he went 
that way. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, so he's making his way northwards. He ends up um, making a base in an old elven Wait, I thought. I thought he... I thought Krell gets buried in the Grey Mountains after, because that's, well, the, glacial, after, that's, that's the, the glacial glacial lake too. No, no, you're right. Uh, it yeah. is afterwards, because um, yeah. then he get, and then he gets woken up again on. The he, uh, yeah, at the his first tomb, his like chaos tomb is either in yeah, the yeah. Middle Mountains or the World's Edge Mountains. I don't want to say which because I'm going to be wrong again. So let's just say in the mountains. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, <laughs> and this is where once again, like Andy was saying earlier, we get a scene that a shows how powerful the Tomb Kings are, and also shows how powerful Nagash is. And that he meets, he sees Krell and he goes, this guy would be awesome. Like, mm -hmm. this would be a perfect champion for me. I, 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 and um, I'm going to bring this point up that I'm thinking in a second. But he decides he wants Krell. But there's a problem. Krell's soul is in possession of corn. And, uh, and there's, it, there is a note that Krell is not necessarily super thrilled with corn because he was promised an eternity of battle. And when he died, Corn was disappointed, despite the fact that he destroyed an entire dwarf hole, which is nuts. Um, but uh, despite all that, when Krell died, Corn did not give him that. He just kind of cast him aside and was like, you failed me, you suck. The end. Chaos gods suck in general for that yeah. exact same reason. So Nagash reaches out to Krell's soul and says, hey, you should come work for me. You should be my champion. I will give you a genuine eternity of battle in the material world not even that like lame corn shit like you can kill whatever you want just come serve me and krell says okay but my soul belongs to a god like not only a god debatably in many people's view the most powerful of just gods corn is big so nagash rolls up his sleeves and he fights corn for krell's soul and he wins <laughs> Gotta love his understanding of the soul and exactly how it works. There is no other character, arguably, in the entire Warhammer world that is more capable of fucking around with souls. Um, so, yeah, that's a thing. Yeah, um, and it's, it's also worth battle. noting that as Nagash is doing his wandering north as well, the Skaven make an attempt to retake uh, good old Nagash's R, but Arkan the Black kicks them the fuck in. Yeah, and and like the 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 scene that's described in the books for the resurrection of Krell is very awesome because it's like literally the skies are like exploding with magic and there's black lightning flashing everywhere and anyone nearby is like oh god and everyone runs away because it looks like the apocalypse because the chaos gods are arguing with Nagash but Nagash rules lawyers them <laughs> into giving him Krell's soul. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, one of the great joys of Nagash in comparison to the Chaos Gods is that Nagash works within the material realm, uh, the mortal realms. And the mortal realms have got physical laws, actual laws. Mm. When you're beyond into the aether, you're into the realm of emotion, imagination, and potential. But when you're working the material realm, you're working by a set of established rules, which means if you get the correct ritual, you do the correct thing, you are going to hopefully get the outcome that you're looking for. And Nagash is better in the material realm than any god any god um yeah. and and was almost certain to win this one it was pride you could argue that meant that uh krell was lost by good old corn yeah so crow wakes up and 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 krell like archon the black is insanely loyal to nagash but archon at least has thoughts and like he he has a little bit of a will where he sometimes will do things without nagash's necessarily approval because he thinks it'll help nagash in the long run and other stuff like that krell is disturbingly loyal to nagash krell, yeah. 
Krell is, I think, like, it, there are very few times we actually get to kind of see inside Krell's mind, but every single time Krell is said to be like, he's almost automaton levels of loyalty to Nagash because yeah. Nagash he's comes into the bargain. replaced corn with Nagash. Um, he's effectively uh, a zealot. Yep. So, so it's Nagash, not even loyal. It's beyond loyalty. It's faith. Yep. So this is where we get the awesome Sigmar throwdown where Nagash comes over the mountains. He's got a huge army of the undead. He's been building up. He resurrects Krell. He resurrects Krell's Barrel Legion, which is a terrifying legion of Cornate undead. Uh, he has got Archon the Black with him in the Sigmar books. He also has vampires with him, but that doesn't make any fucking sense. Um, he does call the vampires to him. Yeah, he does. And they don't answer. <clears throat> so it's worth saying that there's two clean versions of this there's the one that's presented inside the army lists and there's also the legends version that was presented by yeah Game for the Game sigmar storyline yeah totally for the sigmar storyline and they're quite different um graham mcneil went in quite a different direction with how he portrayed it and how he portrayed nagash's army pretty much being across the entirety of the empire attacking everywhere he also as i recall um originally put the crown up in brass keep up in the middle mountains which sigmar went up bopped the person who had it and took that crown and i love that story right and yeah yanked it down to Reitdorf. um the storyline was originally pitched as almost that back in the fourth edition of uh warhammer as well so that didn't change too much but the amount of forces that nagash brings to bear and the nature of the war that takes place is significantly different between the two different versions. Mm -hmm. So it's it's worth saying that in a classic. If you want to go look it up, if you read the novel version, you're going to get a completely different style of story to the ones you get in, say, the fourth to eighth edition of the armies. Yeah, um, in in the in the the Black Library novel and kind of like the army books, it it is kind of an apocalyptically sized army, but there are differences of that in the Black Library books. There are some vampires that turn up. Um, they're a little weird, but there are two vampire generals. Whereas in the army books, it states that no vampires show up, which plays into something, which we'll, we'll get into that in a second. Yeah, absolutely. And the nature of the, the, the fight as well in the uh, army list, it's pretty much they head to Reichdorf, which is modern day Altdorf, and they have mm. a giant apocalyptic fight yeah, on the battle on the battle of the river Reich, the battle of the in, indeed, where if you look at the novel, it that's just one part of an enormous war that goes across the entirety of the empire as most of the tribes are all attacked simultaneously by undead to ensure that Sigmar can't call for help, to ensure that he's massively weakened for when Nagash then drives through. It's quite a different scale in terms of how- Yeah, pretty much the entire Southern Empire is yeah. wrapped up in a fight. Um, and even Middenheim- fun attacked. read. Yeah, so right up the north. Yeah, totally. is always awesome. Um, and even Middenheim up in the north is attacked during that period. Mm. Um, and yeah, they're quite different, but ultimately it's the same process, which is eventually Nagash gets to have himself a, ho a hold down <laughs> with Sigmar. Yeah, they have an epic battle. It's awesome. Uh, and it's there are a lot of really cool characters we all know and love show up. You've got like Alaric the Mads there with uh High King Kurgan Ironbeard because they when they find out Krell's back. The dwarves are very upset because they're like, we already crossed him out of the book. He can't be here. <laughs> Grimple Ironhelm already killed him. <laughs> Why is he still back? So uh, it's a huge fight. The dwarves get involved. Um, the Empire is on its knees. And Sigmar 
somehow uh i love the way graham handles it but like uh they have a big fight and sigmar kills nagash yeah um miraculously it, it's regardless of the version it's miraculous that he beats nagash yeah um in the the novel he's pretty much going to lose it's reached the point where there's only like a, i think like a, as i recall like a hundred left and they're paralleling through and sigmar's trying to reach nagash um and what he does is he eventually uses that he's aware that nagash is interested in only one thing and that's the crown yeah and, he uses, the parlay in the, okay, and this the is the big one sigmar puts it on yeah, okay. which is a which, which is huge. Yeah, um, and I think up... this is a stream to discuss all in of itself because whoever puts that crown on is filled with Nagash's thoughts. And what is Nagash obsessed with? Becoming a god. What happens to Sigmar? Ooh, I've never thought about that. That's a so, so, spicy so take. I like there is that. A, there is a big story like that. potentially to be told there. And I think this is a stream in and of itself. So let's just say yeah. well, I'll drop that bomb. And once that one's been dropped, God damn it! Now, now we have to do like a follow-up Crown of the Gash stream. <laughs> the Crown of Sorcery is freaking awesome. It, it does. It's so important to so many and, different things. And and it comes back later in one of the coolest ways, much much later. Yes. In the orc, okay. But that's that's Anywho, beside the point. We, for we the don't moment. have time for that. So. <laughs> no, no, because that's that. Damn like it, cool. Andy! Um, <laughs> Sigmar comes along with his big hammer, and in as I recall in Graham McNeil's one, it's really nice because the hammer lights up with a bunch of runes that had never been noticed by anyone before, and then he bops um uh Nagash and manages to kill a god with a weapon that no one believed could do that. So that in and of itself is super interesting. This is arguably the point when Galmaraz moves from being the runic weapon that he was given into a runic weapon that's perhaps a lot more than everybody thought it was. As yeah. Bong, yeah, Nagash Sig goes down. Yeah, obviously a huge moment for Sigmar. <laughs> but, mm. uh, complete upset. Um, but yeah, mm. he, he defeats Nagash and um, it's I cannot, like Andy's kind of touched on, I cannot talk, like, it's so awesome in Graham McNeil's book, because it's literally, like, you know how in the Lord of the Rings, it's always like, oh, we have to destroy the ring or whatever. In Graham McNeil's take, it's literally like Aragorn puts on the one ring and uses it to fight Sauron, and it's great. <laughs> it's so good. But yeah, yeah. Nagash. And if you died. know anything about the crown of sorcery, it also made him a wizard, but let's just not think Yeah, about which that. is why Nagash <laughs> could not just, like, point and exactly. kill him instantly which um, i think is a reasonable explanation but and to cut a long story short he yanks off the crown of sorcery which makes nagash reach out for it he hits him in the face nagash dies all the armies collapse as is often the case with an undead army it's a lovely way to narratively yeah, remove but billions of undead nagash does have time for one little thing as he's dying which is he, he lets out another curse, curse. He, as he's dying instead of going maybe i fucked up he goes Fucking vampires! Yep. <laughs> His last words are the goddamn vampires. Fucking vampires. So they'll now not like Sigmar because Sigmar did this to me. As a small parallel, um, the the whole source of this story is not actually anything to do with Nagash. Um, we we loosely touched upon this in um, maybe last week or the week before, I can't recall. Um, but in many respects, Nagash is the replacement of Drakenfels. Um, Drakenfels, that was the big bad necromancer demonologist of the novels um, that uh, were originally released in the 80s, mm -hmm. but was a property that they weren't 100% sure that they owned. So they just created their own one, Nagash. But Drakenfels similarly was taken down by Sigmar. 
in a gigantic battle involving both undead and demons. So Sigmar does this twice, not just once. He does it twice. Um, Drachenfels comes down, is taken out. And from that day onwards, just mentioning the word Sigmar in Drachenfels uh, surrounding is enough to make him shake, to make him pause. And that's how he's taken out. Spoiler Oof. alert! In another yeah. book at a later point. So basically exactly <laughs> the same <laughs> curse. The, the Drachenfels curse is just lifted up and dropped and put down on the gash instead. So it wasn't strictly speaking an original idea that was that was popped over. It was an idea that uh, they already had and reused in a slightly different way. And when later on, Drakenfels turns out to be something that they can use and have used in multiple books, um, that means that we have ourselves effectively a double event for Sigmar, where he not only faces off against the Never Chosen, he not only faces off against Nagash, he also faces off against Drakenfels all within a 50-year period. <laughs> Sigmar. The dude is busy! Sigmar, you know, there's while he's epic, there is a really hilarious through line of like, it's no wonder Sigmar abdicated the throne. He must have been <laughs> fucking exhausted. <laughs> it's like he he fights up that like the bloodthirster in Middenheim and the whole incident with the uh, with the uh, Garion slash Azazel. He deals with like an ever the, the a terrifying ever chosen he fights the gash he fights dragon like he cannot get a fucking break no wonder he leaves <laughs> and to correct my earlier mistake one year later the very last remnant of Nagash's army is cornered up in the gray mountains and krell is failed beside the glacial lake and the mound of krell is the last of Nagash's forces yeah which another point of how strong Nagash is in, in an interesting way is that you know we all know the idea that if a necromancer dies the army collapses which happened with Nagash's army with two exceptions Archon the Black obviously can keep himself going and he just fled Archon just got the fuck out of Dodge um, Krell though is not a wizard there's Krell cannot use sorcery he is not a necromancer he doesn't know necromancy mm -hmm. but Nagash did such a fucking good job like rebinding his soul into him and making him into a champion that Krell doesn't die. Like Krell just he like he looks over and this is in the Grim McNeil story. This is also after he gets shot in the chest with like an organ gun at point blank range. And he's been fighting like hiking oh, the organ gun. Yeah, he's been like fighting Hiking Kurgan Ironbeard. <laughs> he's been fighting Alaric the Mad. He's still going. And he sees the gash die. And he just goes, oh, all right. And he chops his way out of the battle. And he just starts running a campaign of terror through mm -hmm. the Empire up into the Great Mountains, trying to get away. Um, and he's also looking for necromantic power to feed on. There's also, Graham McNeil did write a follow-up story that actually covers the final fight with Krell. It is amazing. Um, but he ends up getting tracked down by Sigmar and the dwarfs. Uh, Sigmar beats him, and they seal him in a tomb in the Glacial Lake, where he remains until kimler ends up later. yeah, yeah. Totally. so uh nagash dies again and yeah what happens oh, next andy so uh, one he's of gone forever right he's yeah gone. he's gone forever he's dead now one of two things happens so option number one he comes back 1,666 years later. And this is rather famously dropped in a bunch of army lists. It's dropped in Warhammer 4th edition as well inside the timeline. Major event. A major event. The Night of Restless Dead or Living Dead, depending on which one you want to go for. Um, and Undead wake up pretty much all over the world. Not just in the Empire, not just where he fell, but all over the place. Dead, rise, dead, shift, and Nagash wakes up. Nagash, having done that whole drip, drip, drip thing, 
pops himself back up in the Black Pyramid and then retreats back to Nagashazar, where he sits in his throne and fucking broods unless somebody decides to use them in his army, in their army, and uses the model. That's yeah. one option. Another option is that he never comes back. He just vanishes. He's just gone. And he won't come back until the end times. When he returns and characters like Drachenfels also fall underneath his sway, although called the nameless one by this point, because they still weren't sure if they could use the name. (laughs) (laughs) That explains why they did that. I was always like, it's a cool story thread, but why do they like like I know who it is? They don't don't ever state who it is. That's actually super funny. Yeah, it is funny. Um, but yeah, as it turns out, Black Library did own the rights to that one. I was gonna Um, say Vermintide was very over the top with it. They were like, Yeah, 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 yeah." we we used it for fantasy roleplay as well. I'm glad Um, they figured that out. That's really funny. Yeah, it was really it, it was very amusing. Um and uh end times also suggests possibly that he was alive throughout that entire period because the end times doesn't completely marry with itself there yeah yeah that's kind of a brief thing of like there in the end times there are we mean andy we're talking about for the stream there's quite literally two separate accounts um one version from the elf perspective they literally go to nagashazar and literally see his body sitting on his throne not doing anything because he's just kind of consolidating power or whatever the hell he's up to and he starts to stir and they're like oh we gotta go and but the first book nagash like there's the whole ritual to resurrect him where they yeah they it's very elaborate and it's really weird and volkmar becomes nagash and it's it's super odd um and he comes back and the end times happen but i'm not gonna worry too much about the end times yeah let's not worry too much about that one let's um instead if you want to see a story of what it's like to be nagash go search yourself out the fourth edition of um well the fourth edition of warhammer the very first undead army list there's i think a one or two page story in there where nagash is sitting on his throne this is after his uh second or arguably third resurrection depending on what you believe he's um uh he's brooding lost in his mind he no longer has anything that even comes close to resembling human emotion and he spots a soul coming in to steal something he is aware of every single soul in all of nagashazar he is again at the center of an empire in the heart of nagashazar which is both rotten broken humans and a variety of undead and he watches this one soul come in until eventually he murders it um, but it's a fun wee story if you want to see one version of what Nagash is like. And as I said right at the very beginning of the stream, the uh, first Undead Army list, the version of Nagash that's presented in there hasn't really changed that much from the one mm. that they use right to the very end. So if you want to get an idea of the entire Nagash story as it was first presented, it's it's a pretty good read. There's a lot in there. It's the one that I read way, way, way back when it first came out, 1994. Um, and it's the one that actually convinced me i wanted to get an undead army again i'll admit though i was not a fan of the miniature yeah i definitely <clears throat> the, the end times definitely gave him a glow up <laughs> oh yeah um the art by mark gibbons inside that army list is absolutely marvelous big huge swinging sensor huge sword looks absolutely gorgeous mark is the best but what that turned into with its funny looking clown model which i painted three times because i still had him in my armies nice <laughs> it, it, it just wasn't good i tried so hard to make that model not look rubbish and it was hard <laughs> it was really hard okay so yeah so that's larger point the Nagash story really genuinely a very interesting character there's a lot i think for anyone that kind of reads through his stuff 
there's a lot of fun to explore about his like he's a character that has a lot of interesting things with arrogance paranoia megalomania fear of death like he has he's a very interesting character in a lot of ways but we have a ton of comments on the discord and stuff we have to get through also uh some super chats that came through of <laughs> of uh yeah the gash just bragging yeah. he tortured the dark elves <laughs> i oh, think man. i think just loosely that there is a story here that the novels did not cover in a way that i think was particularly well covered um where there is a real sense that possibly it was intended that the i mean you can't take three sorcerers the way they took them yeah though i will say i do love the version of the story of how he kills them uh, where he like imprisons their heads in a lead helmet so they can't feel the winds of magic anymore and he like puts out their eyes and takes out their tongues and stuff and then he entombs them alive in a sarcophagus it's like damn the gosh brutal <laughs> i mean i love that shit and i also like yeah. the idea that um elven hubris um has resulted in nagash oh, yeah. and that they oh. were attempting to do something and the gash ended up being far far more than they had any awareness of the that <laughs> he's just being. a monkey what's he gonna do <laughs> yeah quite exactly yeah. hammond uh i hate this thank you <laughs> oh man and also he'll be buck yes good old <laughs> lizardman buck buck um uh, so uh going through the discord comments uh we're just gonna kind of blast through these because a it's lot of people have questions uh so jar jar skinks asks <laughs> jar jar skinks thank you for that <laughs> uh does did nagash have any opinions of the vampire coast or vice versa uh i'm sure he would have saw them as a useful tool that he would abuse like he does everything yeah one of the great uh let's call it a flaw because i think it's a flaw <laughs> one of the great flaws of the end times was its complete <laughs> focus on these tiny areas that the army list dealt with without any real awareness of the rest of the Warhammer world, meaning that things that should have had an enormous impact, like Grand Cathay, um, are ignored. And things like the Vampire Coast and all the fun things that are down there don't get a mention. And the correlation and ties that they would have had with creatures like Nagash are largely ignored. They say, oh, Nagash brought back a bunch of people and made them as more talks and we'll go for all the characters we can find. And they quickly jump on those. So loosely, yeah, all of those things would have probably fallen under his sway, but we don't really get much said about it. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're uh I thought you'd appreciate that. I did. Um, yeah, and they're vampires at the end of the day, and they're undead. So if the gash did come back, it's something they would have to definitely worry about. Like mm. vampires can resist the gash's control, but if he gets close enough to them or he has enough power, he becomes a problem. And there's there's a lot he could offer Luther Harkin. Um, and the vampire coast pirates tend to be a little more on the greedy side compared to other vampires. So I think if anything, he might have an easier time bargaining with them compared to others. That being said, I would have loved to have seen the gash discover the galleon's graveyard. The idea that, that the the other side of the great maw is just a giant un undead playground where everything that dies at sea is gathered to that would Nagash would have gone for that shit real fast. <laughs> yeah. Um and, and given that he's um on multiple occasions had undead fleets under his control and his command mm. the idea that he wouldn't be drawing on that stuff come the end times or any other times is frankly daft. yeah and he does Certainly. he does summon luther harkin to him uh luther harkin becomes the mortark of the deeps uh, in the end there times which was fun uh if the gash i don't even 
if Nagash was a canary, how much warp stone would it take to kill him? I don't know if he capitalized canaries. So I feel like that references something specific, but Nagash I don't is, know what you're talking about. Yeah, neither do I. Uh, <laughs> but I will say Nagash has proven that I genuinely think he can devour a pretty much unlimited amount of warp stone because he designed himself to do it. Um, yeah. Um, his armor, um, the, the study of centuries, um, he knows what to do and not how to do it safely, but how to do it in a fashion that will not long-term damage him. Yeah. Uh, what does Nagash think of the invented undead from what he originally came up with? I think he, uh, I, I assume you mean like kind of modern undead. He'd probably think of the same thing he did with vampires. He'd look at that and go, oh, neat. This is mine now. Yep. It's a tool. Anything with effectively anything with the undead trait is for, for him to play with. Yeah. Uh, what was Nagash's relationship with the other races of the Warhammer world, like Dark Elves, Lizardmen, Grand Cathay, etc.? Uh, probably not great. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you take a look at, say, the Lands of the Dead, they had contact with Grand Cathay. Um, and in yeah, Nehekara was an ally of theirs. Yeah, totally. Trade so, partner, at least. Um, he's going to be aware of it. It's not something that's distant to him, but they are not going to be pals when he becomes Nagash, the great enchanter that comes later. The great necromancer, pardon me. Supreme yeah. master from death. Yeah, at, at the end of the day, he literally takes the entire Warhammer world and flips it on its head. Yeah, he and does. No, and anyone that deals with him for more than a second realizes that unless you are a corpse serving him, he has, you are, you are an obstacle. <laughs> so he would not be friendly with anyone because he's yeah i mean if you take a look at the deal that he made with the skaven for example that was one of expediency um uh it shows that he has an intellect that he can be dealt with and that he's not somebody that is beyond uh approach so to speak he mm. is he is something that actually does have a thinking mind and a sense he's brooding when he comes up 1,666 years later and he's sitting yeah. there brooding for a good few centuries, figuring out how he wants to do things differently. Um, and that shows that he has reflection. That shows that he is someone who can be dealt with. So that means that certain creatures may, Dark Elves, for example, might approach him if there was a reason to do so. Uh, but why would they? Yeah. Why? He, yeah. There are, there are certainly characters who would try. I would absolutely say that. Um, and, the chances uh, of success are super low, though. Yeah. <laughs> You'd have to have something pretty serious to offer him, and even then, probably not worth it. Uh, does Nagash consider himself a god? I, I think he does, but he would take offense at the term. So, I'm going to go slightly further and say he doesn't. Um, yeah. I would say that he, he um, wishes to be a god, um, that he has contempt for the other gods and that ascension is a core part of his character in the same way that ascension was a core part of what would become the gash. There is an entire plot line that loosely alights upon this with the Thousand Thrones for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 2nd Edition. The entire campaign for that is the Thousand Thrones of Vampires coming to take over the world, which is ultimately run by Nagash behind the scenes. And that is his a step towards ascension, becoming an actual god. So I don't think that he thinks of himself currently as a god, although in terms of his actual true power, he is as close to a material god as you can possibly get in the Warhammer world. Yeah, and uh, if if you... The version of Nagash we run with now in Age of Sigmar where he is a god, mm -hmm. and um, a lot of his end times characterization where when he rips out the wind of death, 
um, mm-hmm. that is when you see full-on God Nagash. Yep, absolutely. And that is also where you see the full-on culmination of his overall plan. For all I will happily diss the end times, and I quite enjoy doing I, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, there, that course. doesn't mean that all of the steps that it took were wrong. That doesn't mean that some of the choices that it made for its characters weren't good choices. And the gash and his drive towards becoming a god, 100% on point. I think that is directly exactly what he's attempting to do. I wouldn't necessarily say that for pretty much any of the other characters that became god. <laughs> But definitely for Nagash. Yeah. Um, CB4N, uh, thank you for the super chat again. Uh, uh, thanks again for the stream as usual. Am I remembering the timeline right that Nagash's early years and the War of the Beard are around the same time? Uh, Nagash's, uh, Nehekara in general is after the War of the Beard by a yeah, pretty decent little bit. Uh, yeah. Because Nehekara's kind of expanded into the vacuum left behind by the dwarves and the elves. Um... And plus, you have to remember, Nagash encountered Dark Elves. And uh, that 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 kind of says a lot. <laughs> um, I think you might be off. I'm oh, you know what? I think up. I am. No, I think okay, about so it. let's see. The War of the Beard started. Let me just get it up. Because I'm pretty sure it's 2000. 2000? It is. It's 2000. Okay, so the War of the Beard started 4,500 <laughs> years ago. Nagash was born 4,500 years ago. So they are pretty much directly on top of each other. The War of the Beard, though, largely takes place in the old world. That's where almost all of it goes. So down there, they're pretty much on the edge of it. And the the crashing Dark Elves are almost certainly because of something that occurred with the War of the Beard. There you go. Probably why the Dark Elves are over I'm so bad with timeline shit. (laughs) Yeah. I thought I'd check it up just to make sure I was right. No, no. no. So yes, you are correct. those, Those events and... Honestly, I would say that could be why uh, you would think the Nehekarans would probably have a lot of trade and involvement and uh, maybe even alliances with the dwarves. Could be why the yeah. dwarves didn't get involved. They were yeah. busy. I do find... Because um, you figure Karakazul would have been like, what is going on over there? <laughs> yeah, because uh, the timeline for humanity is a little bit muddled um, in that there's this strong sense, particularly with the dwarves and the elves, that they are the elder species and that humans most certainly are not. But to 4,500 years ago, which is a long time ago, Nekara mm. is at its peak. Not only that, Grand Cathay is at, well, it's at its peak almost from the beginning. So there is definitely something wrong in terms of the general characterization of humanity by some of the other species. And I'm interested to see whether that modifies with the old world uh, and whether they include others with Real quick, that. you said the War of the Bear was 4,000 years ago? It's 4,500, according to this one. Yeah, so in the... And to... this is probably because of changes, but in 8th edition, it says that Nehakara doesn't even really... Or Cetra is in minus 2,500. Nagash yeah. is not until minus 2,000. Minus 2,000? Yeah, that would be the same time as the start of the War of the Beard. Oh, you're counting from modern year. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah. So that's I, thought you meant, I thought you meant minus 4,000 Imperial calendar. Uh, no, 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 no. Minus oh, yeah, 2,000 yeah, yeah, yeah. Imperial calendar. Sorry. <laughs> okay, now, um, so, we're on the same page. <laughs> yeah, 4,500 like... years ago in total. <laughs> okay, okay, sorry. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I like my IC dates. <laughs> Pardon me, that was my fault entirely. <laughs> no, no, you're all good. You're all good. Um, how many times has Nagash been defeated or slain or suffered enormous downfall? Uh, okay, those are very different categories. Uh, he's died officially twice. Twice. Um, yeah. But unofficially, at least three, if not four times. Oh, yeah, if you count the wandering in the desert. Wandering in the desert. Three. He died more than once there as well. 
um, yeah. as he skipped in and out of um, mortality. I mean, he moved from being just a standard mortal into something that's a bit different. Yeah. Uh, see, big, but like downfalls, oh. uh, quite a few. Quite a few. <laughs> to be yeah, honest, he, he's been beaten quite a lot. Um, uh, in that. Um, he's got classic wharf syndrome from Star Trek. And by that, I mean, he gets pulled out whenever you want to show that somebody else is kick-ass. Um, so how are we going to make Sigmar look kick-ass? I know we'll have him beat Nagash, the most powerful thing that we have. Oh, that means Sigmar is suddenly super awesome. And that's what happens with Worf all the time. Oh, look at this incredibly powerful thing. Oh, we'll have it beat up Worf. Oh, it's surely powerful. Gets beat up every third episode. Could Nagash kill Archeon? It would depend a lot on which version of Nagash. And which also, version of Archeon? Yeah, and also which version of Archeon. Like, Archeon yeah. consistently got juiced up more and more and more the later we go in war. Because for the end times, they had to make him... Obs the end times the get Archeon makes, like, Storm of Chaos Archeon look like an absolute bitch. <laughs> um, so if we ignore the end times and we just cut <laughs> it off just before there, and uh, we look at the characters, then Archeon would have his ass handed to him most of the time. Yeah. From, um, from a but... narrative perspective, Archeon tends to win because he has, like, not plot armor, but, like, plot sword. Um, to be, you know, he he's supposed to blow up the world, so obviously he has to be unstoppable. But yeah. the feats that he accomplishes don't really support him being able to beat Nagash. It's a little bit like um, if you look at the old Storm of Chaos plotline, the whole point of that was for Chaos to win, but it didn't. Yeah, <laughs> I, I will say there's a very notable difference between Archeon, the Storm of Chaos, who is a level one wizard, and Archeon, the End Times, who is a level four plus wizard. Yeah. <laughs> because they realized that he needed to be very big. Absolutely. Um, um, and I'd also add as well that um, if you just skip beyond looking at stats and what they did, Nagash is effectively a god. Um, and the one that's in the modern times is arguably less powerful than one the one before he just did his big great ritual. Um, that hmm. was arguably Nagash at his peak. But even the one with his claw and his crown sitting there with his armor on, with his big sword, that character is absolutely bonkers. There's a reason they didn't add him back to Warhammer until the very end. It's because he was considered to be too powerful to actually deploy. Plus, he didn't really fit into the Vampire and Tomb King split um, when they split yeah. them up. Um, is there anyone that could permanently destroy Nagash for good? I think plenty of people could under yeah. the right circumstances. Yeah. It's it's certainly doable. No one, no one in Warhammer is genuinely invulnerable. Yep, completely um, agree. And I'd go further and say that's the case for almost every... Yeah, yeah. in fact, as you say, every character yeah. can be... I mean, even... Uh, this would be a fun topic one day, but like I would even debatably argue any god can be killed under the right circumstances. It's just really hard. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a fun old one. Um, the big thing with these characters is that uh, when you take them out of context, it's much easier to say, well, that character, we could get pulled by that one. But the second you put them in context and you go, well, he's in Nagashazar, surrounded by an empire. That makes it suddenly hmm. much less difficult. He's an entire faction that everybody forgets about because he's in that dark area that no one goes to typically in Games Workshop lore. But there is a big empire of Nagash down there just waiting to pop up and would make, I think, a fascinating faction for, for example, with the old world. Don't think they'll do it, but they might. Yeah, it would be fun. Yeah, be fun. That, yeah, it's, you know, it's 
you know, as much as uh, people in the community really love those who would win scenarios, like we've mm -hmm. had a lot of requests to do those here on the show, and we might kind of entertain those from time to time, but like they're kind of dumb <laughs> because they you you have to you have to the parameters is most of the discussion of like, well, how the fuck would this work? Because yeah. like Nagash versus Archeon. Well, is it Archeon? The thing that makes the ever chosen the ever chosen is that he binds together all the legions of chaos. It's not necessarily that Archeon himself is unstoppable. It's that he's leading an unstoppable legion yeah. of like him versus Nagash. They probably wouldn't even fight each other until like very late. In, and it would be kind of dramatic, but like, you know, Arkan would be sitting there on a hill on Dorger being like, Meh. and <laughs> there'd be greater demons attacking the gash, you know, and that would be kind of the fight. Um, you that's, you know, <laughs> context is, uh, if we're going down this rabbit, see, this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> Indeed. In yeah. Arian versus the gash, that's a fun one though. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I mean, that's, that's a God slaying weapon. Yeah. I, I mean, my money would be on an Arian. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I think uh, mine probably would be too. <laughs> but once again, context is the gash okay. at the back of his huge legion i honestly think the gash could wear down an arian and beat him but if it's just the two of them in a room yeah no an arian's gonna kick the shit out of him but Nagash would not allow that <laughs> so uh anyway um sigmar killed question. him after all yeah and you know it's like debatably sigmar kind of had to trick him for that mm, and and once again yeah and i think your breasts yeah, I think Nagash was like, oh, a human. I can I can do this. I think Nagash probably would have been a lot more wary about an Arian on his dragon. <laughs> he probably would have been like, no, <laughs> I'm not gonna fight that. We should have then we have Nagash and a zombie dragon. That, that, that's a fight. Yeah. But it's like, you know, it's kind of like Setra versus Nagash. Nagash realized he could not beat Setra and was like, I'm just not gonna do this. Yeah. I'm gonna run away. Retreat, go sit in my home. Uh, was there ever an ounce of goodness in Nagash, or was he always rotten to the core? Well, this is a really difficult question to answer because there's not really any such thing as objective yeah, he's, goodness. He's also um, not that well explored before he kind of becomes full megalomaniacal Nagash. Yeah, um, and, and his character significantly changes when he arrives at the Sour Sea and he starts experimenting with Warpstone. And Warpstone, by its very nature, corrupts. Um, but beyond the simple fact that he corrupts and becomes different, before that, he was already quite, let's say, unique. I would say if if you ever wanted to try and frame, couldn't a gash have had a good side to him? I do think there would have there could be some interesting exploration into what Nagash may have witnessed as a child and a teenager that he became so convinced that the gods were just awful. Yeah, I think people I, shouldn't be under them. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I think that that was actually my biggest um, issue when I was moving into the Nagash novels, and that's that they didn't ex really explore Nagash. They didn't really yeah, justify his character because his character and the way it comes across has no real pillar behind it to explain why he is the way he is what were his loves what were his hates who is he who is he other than nagash yeah the books okay so I, i'm gonna take a very brief moment to say that i personally do not think the nagash black library novels are worth reading uh i think they're not a great implementation of the character they kind of assume you know who nagash is and don't explore it at all um and i don't like them but uh that's nothing against <laughs> 
<laughs> I hate them. Yeah, I'm not trying. I don't want to shit on the author. I just, I just don't like the story he told, and it conf it conflicts very heavily with literally everything else. It does. Uh, does Nagash have a notable grudge against the Skaven for the Fell Blade? Oh yeah, yeah, big time. <laughs> yeah, big time. And the Skaven in turn have a significant grudge against him, and it's not just because he he's defeated them significantly on multiple occasions. Um, that. Yeah, just bluntly, yes. I mean, yeah. I think what we said already covers everything. Could Nagash claim the Cathayan spirits that the Dragon of Death watches over under the Dragon River? Uh, I think he absolutely could, but he would have to obviously fight. There's a um, fight there. Yeah, yeah, it would be it would be a throwdown. We know that there's the 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 court of Shaiish, which is like a whole ancestral monk order that defends it. Mm -hmm. If there's an order to defend it, that means it can be threatened. So yes, yeah, absolutely, and I think that perfectly perfectly describes it. Yeah. What if Nagash was not the firstborn? Well, then he wouldn't be Nagash. Yep. He'd be the secondborn. He'd be king. Yeah. yeah. He would have just been King Nagash instead of King Thutep. And he probably would have been kind of an asshole king, but he, he probably would have been a lot like Setra. Yeah. I think he and Setra would have been very similar. Uh, what if Nagash was born an elf? Then he just wouldn't be, <laughs> he wouldn't be Nagash. <laughs> no, um, he wouldn't. No, so it'd be I guess so massively different. Yeah, I guess if you're asking, like, what if it had been an elf that had explored the type of necromancy that he did, that could be an interesting mental so, exercise, but it'd be weird. It would be weird. Now, the reason I would suggest that it would probably never happen is because the elves are intrinsically linked to their gods. They are intrinsically linked to the way that their gods work, what their gods believe. Pretty much every single major elf faction or how they work is tied directly to one of their gods and how those gods think. Gods don't like necromancy it mm. is wrong now that doesn't mean that they don't like souls and spirits doing stuff what they don't like is material corpses popping up for no reason at all that goes against the order of nature so elves because they generally work within the order of nature and i conclude the druki with that they are 100 working within the realms of the gods they're just working within different gods to others yeah. but but the undead do not. So one I do not things, see them ever becoming true necromancers. Yeah. One of the things that's super interesting about necromancy is necromancy is so perverse in the Warhammer mm. world. Even the all, even despite all of their insanity and how opposed they are and everything, the four dark brothers, the dark gods, they hate necromancy. They hate it, which is insane. Like that's how perverse it is. We're like, especially vampires the, there's actually a lot of really fun stuff about how the dark brothers do not like vampires for their own reasons um, yeah you, you got to remember that the chaos gods are immaterial creatures and the undead are pretty much 100 percent material yeah, pure material yeah I, they're antithetical to each other now if you go all the way back to the original imaginations of zinch uh, the original zinch had quite a lot of undead iconography working through it some of the old chaos champions of zinch had like skull faces and bones and there was that touch of undead running through it they eradicated hmm. that when they explored the undead as an actual concept rather than just we're throwing all the cool shit in now you can obviously use that if you are sitting out there wondering about your own role play games for example i'm thinking can i try and draw that into my zinch version of iconography of course you can but if you're looking at what games workshop do they are thoroughly and completely antithetical yeah uh is nagash the first lich or is it drakenfels <sighs> drakenfels is um kind of a weird he Dragonfells is a, like Andy said, Games Workshop did not touch him for a really long time. So he never got the he never got to be ported into how the world evolved. 
he's been kind of stagnant and he's really weird because of that. Yeah. Like he's, uh, I don't even know how to really to describe him because he's so unique compared yeah, to Dracon everybody else. Is unique. And I don't think that he benefits for being categorized. It's much better to say Drakenfels is Drakenfels. And we can just sit there. Does he have the undead trait? Well, given what the end times did with him, the answer would be yes. But I would argue that and say that the, un the end times didn't necessarily make best use of the character. Is then Nagash the first? No, because there was already liches. Like, yeah, liches were all like, over the place. That They all were over all the over. All over um, what eventually becomes the land of the dead in Nehekara. Um, they were an established thing, and Nagash came into and it probably would have become a lich priest along with the rest of them. That was his fate, but he took it much further. Uh, what is in Nagash's books? A lot. Um, mm. so the the nine books of Nagash contain pretty much everything Nagash ever discovered about magic and necromancy. That is the easiest way I can put it. Yeah. Um, and it's fair to say that everything that is understood as necromancy later is already in there. He effectively didn't just write the book in it. He also found the limits. Yeah, And that's I'll... super important because mm. it makes those books exceedingly important because they do not just contain how it works. They contain how all of it works. Yeah, there's every single necromantic tome that exists outside of the nine books of Nagash are usually someone's attempt to translate Nagash, yeah. one of Nagash's books, or they're translating a translation of one of Nagash's books, or translating or the a translation the of the sorcery. Yeah, um, someone wielding the crown of sorcery starts penning parts of the books of Nagash. That happens on more than one occasion. Um, and yeah, it's the source of all things that is perverted and wrong about magic. Yeah, but as having far just as, one book yeah. is like Vlad von Karstein almost destroying the empire when he performs the big ritual that raises all the dead in Sylvania. He did that with one book. Yep, one. Just one. Uh, having more than one is virtually unheard of for a character. Uh, most characters that have access to a book have a single one. Um, I, I cannot think of a single character that has two books um, that like is usually like, maybe Zacharias the Everliving. Maybe. Um because technically, anyway, um, but yeah, uh, did Marathi know that Nagash's necromancy was derived from the form of Dar she created? And if so, what did she think of it in Nagash himself? Now, you see, that's one of those questions. It's uh, firstly impossible to answer because you're not yeah, sure that it definitely came from, you, you don't <laughs> even know if it's definitely her brand of um, uh, dark magic that was used. Uh, but I will say that uh, would she be able to? If she faced it, the tech that is very similar to many of the things that she had done, yes. Uh, Luring Lion, yeah, we, we we could take a look at that in the last the last little couple minutes. Apparently, apparently a little thing dropped and people are throwing money at us to look at it. So yes, oh, how exciting! Yeah, we we we'll, we'll do that in the last few minutes. Um, <laughs> John Locke Cole, what are Nagash's favorite and least favorite office supply stores? Thank you for that question. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like there should be a pun in here somewhere, but I can't think of one. Yeah, I know. I'm, I, I, can't think, I can't think of any anything deadly enough. <laughs> or like bony enough. I don't know what the word. Moving on. <laughs> Yeti 13. Why did the scave why have the Skaven not recreated the fell blade and used it on other things? Because they would never agree to create a weapon like that again, because one of them might use it against them. 
and they all were required to make it. It wasn't something that was easily made by a single individual. It took them all working together to actually create this extraordinary weapon, which was, as we all know from the Skaven, pretty much only ever going to be a one-off because they never agree. Rick Lally, thank you. Thank Appreciate you. that. Clint Carey. <laughs> God damn it. Of course, of course it is. <laughs> We were, we were trying to make it clever that we shouldn't. Yeah, we should have tried. tried. <laughs> um, okay, I'm only going to answer this because <laughs> Epsilon One Seven. I I need to like curate y'all's questions. Y'all are abusing this privilege. <laughs> Does Nagash fuck? Yes, Vashnesh is one of his descendants. There you go. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. Yes, is the answer to that. Um. Plus the yeah, novel. But plus the novel uh, sort of goes into some of his sessions there. Very, yeah. very. It's a bit. It's, it's there a bit is, ugly. yeah. There is. I'm ignoring the novels because I don't like them. Uh, mm. <laughs> there is actually some really interesting things that Nagash is kind of portrayed in a lot of different things. Nagash is often portrayed as borderline asexual. Um, mm. He does not care a lot of the times about carnal desires. He just doesn't have them. Seemingly, um, if he had descendants. Uh, which he does. He like he does. did that for like political reasons or like a dynasty reason, but he does not seem to actually genuinely lust for anyone. Cut it bluntly. Yeah, he was a king for hundreds of years, yeah. and that comes with all the trappings of being a leader. And do you think he's just going to sit up there and not consider the potential of dynasty? The very nature of what he was attempting to create, legitimacy. Uh, so I think there is no doubt at all that that would have been a part of his power play. Yep. Uh, let's see. Oh my gosh. Uh, from my reading, it says that when Nagash fought the priest kings, it was the first time the dead had been raised to serve another. However, Nagash was taught the secret of Dar for the Dark Elves. Did they teach of dark magic generally discover necromancy? Or did they already know necromancy? And if so, why don't the... Okay, so this boils down to why don't elves use undead slaves? And I think that we've already covered that to quite some depth, and it's because it's fucking wrong. Yeah, so there you go. Which is... which. A lot of people, a lot of people think dark elves are just like sinister evil. They always do the wrong thing, but they're they're not. There's more really not. They, they have a system of morals. It's just not yeah. a human system of morals. Absolutely, thinking that the um, the druki are bad guys um, is doing a disservice to them. They're not. They're not good people. <laughs> but thinking that they only do evil things for evil's sake is incorrect. They do not. Uh, isn't Nagash's endgame kind of boring? Kill everyone and sit around and be bored? Uh, not if you literally want to be God and control an ordered universe. Yeah. Like, I don't think you understand how arrogant he is. <laughs> and um, also yeah. how much he fears, like, change and things that can threaten him. Yeah, Zinch is pretty much his natural enemy. Um, I would argue the only way that uh, he would be happy with Zinch is if he was Zinch. Yep. Uh, how canonical is it that Nagash sounds like Skeletor? Don't you know what? Enjoy your dreams. That's if you want that to be the case, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, you just <laughs> I am I have zero doubt there is someone at Games Workshop that has worked on Nagash who felt who felt that was the case. Um, did Nagash ever realize there are planets beyond the Warhammer world to conquer? I don't think he has in the Warhammer fantasy timeline, but I'm sure if he had succeeded, he would have eventually. Right, so um, there are other planets inside the Warhammer solar system. Some of those are probably inhabited in some fashion or another. Would mm. he have been aware of those? Absolutely, because if there's anything you can say about any 
civilization that's based on Egyptians, that's that they are aware of celestial objects. Um, so I think there is no doubt that he would have been aware of them to a degree, but I don't think that that was really part of any of his major thinking. Yeah, no. I, if he had succeeded in like dominating the entire planet, he might have started looking outward. Yeah. Um, what is the core reason why Nagash managed to become so much more than Setra ever did? Uh, they figured out immortality. Yeah. I mean, and also much. he could actually use magic. Yeah. Those are the kind of the two big ones. Yeah. Magic is the big superpower of war the Warhammer world. Um, and Nagash has access to a superpower. Setra has access to his own bloody minded determination. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I think if Setra, if Setra had been the one who found the Dark Elves and they had taught him magic instead, I think he would have just been Nagash before Nagash. Just Assuming that he even had the capability to cast spells, given that it's something that is not necessarily inherent to all humans. Yep. Uh, how did Nagash get away, get away with a lot of what he did while in the Mortuary Cult? Was Kotep not around? Uh, <laughs> well, Nagash A was very secretive about a lot of it. Um, he was very stealthy. Also, he'd been in the mortuary cult for a long time. He mm -hmm. knew what he was doing and he knew mm -hmm. them better than they knew him. Yeah. And when he made his move, he was nigh on unassailable. Yeah. So uh, yeah. they had to run. They, yeah. like, they fled. Or, uh, or support him. Uh, because you're going to die if you don't. Uh, did Nagash fear Cetra? I would say absolutely. Like, well... Nah, Nagash doesn't fear. I would say that Nagash realized that there were steps that he couldn't take, so um, withdrew. Um, I don't think fear yeah, is fair. quite the right word for Nagash. That's fair. In the same way that Nagash, I don't really think, has anything that's really strong beyond some rather negative need for revenge and such like that he broods upon. Um, but fear, I think, is probably too strong. The only thing that he's really left with fearing, if you go by the canonical version of him, is Sigmar's bloody hammer. Yeah, I I think he would be very frustrated mm -hmm. by Cetra, yeah. Um, in that you know it's literally something he just can't touch. Annoyed. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And you have to remember that by the time Nagash meets Cetra, he's not human at all. Mm -hmm. uh, he's undead, and he. I would say the way Nagash processes what little emotions he feels, like Nagash genuinely probably believes he doesn't feel emotion because he probably thinks he's above that, and uh, yeah. And what he does feel is probably very little. Yeah, I'll, I'll hark back to that um, original Undead Armulus story again. It goes into a little bit of his uh, character there. And obviously it's changed over time, but it gives you a good place to show how he has moved beyond the vast majority of human emotion. The uh, Gash has some pretty wacky feats, the biggest one being that he literally devours Usirian. That's end time stuff. Don't worry about it. <laughs> in times in times was in times that's that's literally all i can say to it uh, i am end, become death yeah in the end times uh, he has one of his mortarks chant a big ritual from the nine books of dagash and while that's chanting it powers him up enough where he kills the syrian and eats him and god god eating is a very notable trait that nagash gets in the end times that he has carried into age of sigmar he eats a lot of gods uh but that is not something that's that's a very don't worry about it. Yeah, <laughs> right. I think it's a natural progression of his character while simultaneously not really enjoying how it was handled. Yeah. Um, in Age of Sigmar, I think it's handled a lot better than it was in the end times. And I think his devouring of Valea was handled well. The devouring, devouring of Assyrian was weird. Mm. 
Uh, Tomb Kings has some very powerful constructs that seem far more useful than your usual undead. Did Nagash make use of them after raising Kimri? Uh, they require God's help, so I don't think nope. he could. Nope, that's not his. That's not his shtick. Yeah. Plus, he would probably view that as beneath him. Like he wants to use his own toys. You got to remember that they were the toys that were used against him, and yeah. the mortuary priest did not want to do that. The mortuary cult had no plans of showing their true power until Nagash became so powerful they had to move against him and then they brought everything they had to bear to bring him down and by that point he's using necromancy in a very different style of magic <laughs> lally does manfred actually think the gash was weak absolutely yeah manfred, manfred yeah manfred. yeah 100 <laughs> uh manfred would absolutely like the end times plot of manfred helping resurrect the gash because he thinks he can like take on the gash i think is 100 percent accurate and boy, he fucked up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Manfred has got um, a towering personality disorder. <laughs> Andy, would you say you're educated on D&D &D lore? I have some of it, but not much of it. This is a very specific question. And Who I'm probably screwed. <laughs> the Gash versus Vecna. From oh, Christ. Um, and I'm like, I don't know nearly enough about that, dude. Um, uh, I'm going to say Nagash because we're in a Nagash stream. There we go. Uh, what was Nagash's greatest, most epic fight? Uh, Sigmar. Yeah, because like yeah. that was the that was the gash getting to like kind of pre-plan and throw everything he had and he still loses. Um, yeah. Well, um, he, I, instead of it being like he gets caught by surprise, which is usually how he loses. Yeah, I I quite like the Alcazar fight, um, but I like that because it's desperate. Where the Nagash mm -hmm. fight, I always feel it's a little bit like we're just trying to make Sigmar awesome that's fair um and i i have that slight when i read it i'm still like yeah you're just making sigmar awesome that's all you're doing really isn't it where with the alcarazar nagash fight it feels proper desperate um with the council of 13 doing everything they can and it's super epic in terms of its overall impact because if they skaven lose arguably he's going to do it again and this is the point where he attempts to take over the world the world is saved by the council of 13 yeah which is that's hilarious. Awesome. Also, yeah, awesome. literally the best thing Age of Sigmar ever did was bring back the Skaven stopping the Gash's <laughs> ultimate ritual. That was, it is, that scene, I'll have to send to you sometime, Andy, because it's oh, so I've, I've read funny. It. Oh, yeah. I yeah. love the Gash is doing the mental checklist of every god he's beating. He's like, yeah, I'm safe. And then he goes, wait, where are the Skaven? <laughs> oh, <laughs> <are> the Skaven? <laughs> so great. Um, does the Gash ever feel remorse? No. Nah. Um regret yes because he broods remorse no yeah um so I, I i will say though for the most epic fight i we never got it like written i would have loved to see an author do the first big fight between nagash and cetera when nagash did not realize he could not beat cetera and cetera was going all out because he was pissed that was probably an epic throwdown I imagine it's probably a little bit less epic than, say, Sigmar, though, which was pretty much world-endingly awesome. The sky crashes with thunder. True. I, I reckon was, that's going to be much... Nagash panic. I, I think it'll just be <laughs> kind of cool to see Nagash panic and realize yeah. that everything that he's throwing isn't working. And then he just gets the hell out of Dodge and runs because it's the best op option that he has available. The best way to deal with Cetra is just to throw a bunch of troops in front of him. Uh, my understanding is Nagash sometimes betrays his own followers. Is there anyone that knows that and still serves Nagash of their own free will? <sighs> betrays that... his own followers. Wait a minute. I guess like in the sense of like vampires and stuff. Mm. No, they betray like... him first. Yeah. Like... I mean, he, he puts checks and balances in 
to ensure that should anyone betray him, he can fuck them over royally. Um, and he does take control of anything that has the undead trait because he thinks that's just his. But when it comes to fucking over his followers, not really. It tends to be more of a punishing failure type of idea. Yeah, and I would say that the the only truly loyal agents to Nagash are Archon and Krell. Yeah. Generally speaking. But I mean, they I, are... I'd, I'd go further. I'd say that there's probably thousands of truly loyal uh, worshippers yeah, in Nagash. Like, loads of them all over the place. Yeah. Um, Something I would love... I know they're never going to do it, but if... if <laughs> I wish I wish you had done this. Uh, if uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 4th ever got like a dungeon supplement for Nagash's art, it'd be fucking oh, awesome. Fucking awesome. Yeah, like, it's be full. Fun. Like, there are people there. There's a, it's whole... a whole fucking empire. That would be... Yeah. An, it's, it's still there. enormous amount of fun to write. Um, yeah, I but that I had a plan for bringing back Nagash around about fourth campaign if we ever got there, um, and using that it was going to start off with the crown of sorcery coming in with a certain wyvern riding orc. Um, oh, and that would be quite fun. Uh, can Nagash be permanently killed? Absolutely, anybody yeah, can. Definitely, yeah, it'd be hard, but uh, but like uh, the end times, they actually did a good job of introducing a MacGuffin to kill him, which was actually one of the magic. I think it's the. Blade the, of the the, the, the eternity? No, the yeah, the uh, eternity sword, eternity or like blade sword. of eternities, whatever it was, whatever it's called. Yeah, that it, thing. Yeah, it it's yeah. it's a sword that existed in the canon before, and it very logically would kill Nagash if he gets stabbed with it. Um, yeah. unfortunately, they don't stab him with it, or he does get stabbed with it, but it's after he like becomes full god mode, so it doesn't work. Um, which like all right, <laughs> um, all right, the last uh, what is the black pyramid made out of? It's black marble. Um, it's mentioned in multiple places that it's black marble. Uh, I imagine it's, uh, as it's mentioned in multiple places as well, it's covered in runes. They've done various magical treatments to it, but ultimately it is a black marble that is pulled from presumably the World's Edge Mountains or somewhere equally distant. Okay, and then uh, we're, we're out of time, but I promised we would look at this very, very short little clip. So let me pull that up real quick and I'll send it to you. And then we. Oh, can... you're doing that? Does Nagash have cults? Yes, there's multiple cults to Nagash. I'm just noticing that from Lord Zemus. Oh, yeah. Hey, if you see any last second questions you want to answer, by all means. Yeah, I'm, I'm still an idiot and I haven't got my ID set up so I can bring them up myself. But yeah, they, they do. <clears throat> Was Andy, Andy talking about Lohammer in the past tense? No, absolutely freaking not. Um, and my Lohammer is moving on every single freaking week. Yeah, no, uh, he's progressing way faster than like any other campaign I've ever seen. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, we're, uh, yeah, we're just uh, sadly not dealing with undead just now. So not a lot of correlation with this particular episode. Okay. Oh, okay. So this is a very short little, this is like so short. It's, I don't even know if it's really that much worth looking at. So this is it, it, uh, here, I'll post it in our discord chat, but, uh, so they're dropping hints for the upcoming characters for Shadows of Change. And this one looks like a certain potentially Baba Yaga-ish type character. Who oh, totally, I wonder who that's going to be. Then. Yeah, who totally didn't leak on Reddit earlier this week. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm very excited. I'm very curious what uh, Mother Ostenkia will look like. I am super duper 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 excited. I don't think I could be more excited about something that I effectively created being reintroduced I, in a different way yeah, into, the, the, into the game. That's just brilliant. The hags have been my most requested thing for the races that we have in Total War. I love um, that. There are three clips. What do you mean there are three clips? Oh, God damn it. 
Um, oh, oh, yep, there's one. Oh, oh, the oh, well, okay, yeah. So there's Yuan Bo, who we've already seen confirmed and stuff, and there's the Changeling, who we've already seen confirmed and stuff. Uh, in the story that I bet Andy has totally read by now. <laughs> We'll, we'll make him we're, we're gonna make him take a quiz at the start of next sunday's oh, me i still haven't read it oh that is so embarrassing i keep on me right let's write it into my bloody you could have, list. could have read that instead of the nagash book <laughs> that would have been a better use of time you're almost certainly correct but i did read it nevertheless you know it's, it's always good to do your prep and then realize that you wish you hadn't uh are we sure it's the change like based on the short story they released yeah um I uh do we do any of the clips have the chicken hut? No, it's literally just like a tree and like a super spooky, super spooky tree. Um yeah, unfortunately, I I based on a lot of things, um, it is it is not Egram as much as I want it to be Egram. Um yeah, we yeah, we we would love to do a Egram von Horseman chat, but we can't yet for reasons. <laughs> um not total war related reasons i should say uh for 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 lawhammer reasons <laughs> um we don't want to spoil things about him but in any event, definitely for our one unfortunately yeah. we're out of time that's just uh, the way time goes it flies by yeah thank you all so much for watching uh once once real shadow of change stuff not just the little teasers but once like actual stuff is out um we will we'll we'll do a thing about it and chat about it because it'll be really fun and there's a lot of like there's a lot of old lore that's being brought up from um what stuff andy's written for kislev mm -hmm. then we've mm -hmm. got like full-on new new stuff with Cathay, where i've sent andy a lot i've sent andy a lot of reading material <laughs> poor andy i'm just no no poor andy I, I i devour this stuff it's what i love yeah and then uh of course the uh um zinch stuff uh, once we have the confirmation of the characters so we will once that's all been like fully revealed we will absolutely do a lore beards on what everything is and like what we think about it from a lore perspective because that's what's fun and that's what we do here but yes, uh anyway that is it for this stream we hope you enjoyed all the stuff learning about nagash it was a lot of fun to chat about um i love nagash love nagash I'd um, like to conclude with a heavy. I actually loved Nagash as a character. Um, I think that they did an extraordinary job, and I think the um, initial version put together by Bill King and Jervis Johnson, all the way back in 1994, um, the fact that it has remained so consistent throughout the time um, shows just how strong their character building was back then. I I just love him. He's the best. Yes, and uh, just randomly a few last little things. Uh, chaos rising yes i'm gonna do a video about chaos rising later today uh and he was at the premiere for it uh, i was yeah so he got to see it all cool and stuff uh i watched it I yesterday did. i watched it yesterday with my family it was a ton of fun it was exactly what i hoped it would be and there there were actually a couple surprises in there um that i really enjoyed Wah! uh and uh <laughs> yes and also uh disemboweling people is very fun um <laughs> but um uh, also, make sure if you haven't already, please go check out Lawhammer. And here's the thing you have to go subscribe to Lawhammer because the community poll for the next Lore Beards is going to be on the Lawhammer channel, not oh, mine. Oh, yeah. So come you, and get it. So if you want to <laughs> be able to help decide what the next uh, subject is going to be for next week, 
you got to go to Andy's channel. It's not going to be on my channel. I will, I will direct you to it, but you have to go sub over there. We need to, we need to get him above like 10k quick, quick. Quick, oh, quick. that would be lovely. Do Pretty come fast. along, you 10Ks. And so you know what you're getting. You'll get a mixture of occasional lore stuff, but I play Warhammer every single week Well, for the Lawhammer game, uh, where we play the most famous campaign ever written for Warhammer, The Enemy Within, for the fantasy roleplay game. And we do that every single Friday, but we already have like 25 videos up there that you can work your way through redolent with lore i also do mapping as well so that's mapping of different parts of the warmer world at the moment i'm mapping the town of callaghan which is in the reichland and those streams are a mixture of me just chatting away about what we're mapping but also deep lore dives into the sort of things that you can get there so do please oh queek i do if, love if, queek if you i i'm dead serious if y'all get Lawhammer up to five thousand subs i will literally stop everything i'm doing i will stop playing Baldur's gate three I will stop doing whatever and I will make and release the Queek video that y'all have been waiting like four years for. <laughs> Anything that makes him stop playing Baldur's Gate 3 must be special. Yeah. Oh my God. That game is dangerous. It's fucking dangerous. Yeah. I've decided I'm playing on PS5, which means I've still got a few weeks. Yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I cannot express enough uh, how much amazing Lawhammer is. It is, it, it, it is the ultimate expression of Warhammer Fantasy Lord that is out right now outside oh, thank you very much like it's amazing if you've ever listen if you've ever wanted to see a genuinely perfectly acted and canonical <laughs> situation of a human walking up to a dwarf lord and calling him the wrong name after the dwarf <laughs> just told him what his name was it is fucking insane like oh, oh my god <laughs> i think uh, you haven't watched the next lord episode, great axe oh Oh, you haven't watched the next episode. No, Wait no, I'm watching what tomorrow. happens there. Oh my god, that oh, is, it's a good one. It is, it is genuinely an amazing show. And Andy explains so much shit that he doesn't have to and probably shouldn't, but he does anyway. <laughs> and it's amazing. Like there's hijinks, but just a lot of incredible lore stuff. And I think probably this week, and if not next week at the latest, um, I'm going to be starting kind of like a rewatch through of the series to do like breakdown episodes as far as like with the community and stuff, uh, which we talked about doing last week, but I'm going to be doing that because things have calmed down a little bit. Um, I say as shadows of change comes out probably later this month. Uh, it's just the way it goes. eh? Yeah. Uh, and of course, check out the rookery publications as well. Uh, they just finished their most recent season of their mm -hmm. interviews and stuff, but um, on top of the streams, I which are awesome, Actually, yeah, why don't um, you talk about it for a second? Yeah, okay. So um, over on Rookery Publications, that's um, a completely different YouTube thing you should go check out. We might even be mm -hmm. a link sitting down there um, uh, in the chat. Um, definitely if you were on Twitch. Um, we do streams about gaming in general. We do stuff about fiction. Oh, look at that. It's like magic. Um, <laughs> and we talk to Warhammer authors. We've had Andy Hall on, for example, from Total War. And we just discuss gaming for an hour every single week. And we discuss cool stuff about how the things that we love get created. We also do tutorials about creating your own stuff, whether that's mapping or what I'm doing this Saturday, where I'm going to be doing a tutorial on how you can create your own locations for role-playing games in a concise way that ensures you get them done. That's going to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to that next Saturday. Yeah. And also, Lawhammer and Rookery both have Patreons. Go support those. You, oh yeah sure uh, there's a lot of like unlike mine he actually puts out stuff <laughs> so uh there is actually a ton of awesome material on there for role playing uh rookery has a lot for just like gaming in general mm -hmm. and role play games and stuff uh and andy has a shit ton of articles that can vastly improve your wolf rep experience 
Oh yes. Um, Vest. Uh, like genuinely, I steal. I don't use everything he uses, but I use a lot of what he uses. Um, and it helps a like it's genuinely makes the game feel a lot more fun and just better. Um, so anyway, that's enough of how does Valrek put it? That's enough waffling. <laughs> ah, enough waffling. Uh, so we're gonna go. Thank you all for watching. Uh, if you haven't already, please go check out Chaos Rising. Please support those guys. Go watch it. Give them a like. Leave a comment. All that stuff. People. Yep. And uh, it'd be awesome to see that. I don't know how they would do it. As far as like, it'd be it'd be nice to see it get picked up somehow. But at the very, who knows? Maybe Games Workshop will look at it and go, oh, <laughs> maybe who knows? Good. But uh, at the very least, they they deserve a lot of success for that. Indeed. Uh, so yeah. seeing you all. Bye bye. Until next time. Bye bye.